This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Everybody and welcome to some interseason goodness from the sequelizers. I am your host, Jack Chambers, as always, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stockton. This is the Kobayashi Maru, 19 periods out of Altar 6. We have struck a gravitic mine and have lost all power. Our hull is penetrated and we, we've sustained many casualties. Thanks, Matt. That You're was, welcome. That, that was a journey. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of going on journeys, joining us, also as always, it's Tim Matum. Let me tell you something. This is not an easy job. I get on the call on the radio, dispatch. It's bad news and it stinks. But this is my job and I love it because I want to do well. In this life and in this world, I want to do well and I want to help people. And I get 20 bad calls a day, but one time I can help someone and make a save, correct a wrong, or write a situation, then I'm a happy cop. And as we move through this life, we should try and do good do good. And if we can do that, not hurt anyone else, well, then... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, listeners. You're you're welcome, listeners. You're welcome for maybe two of the weirdest intros we've ever had (laughs) for the sequelizers episode. Yeah, actually. (laughs) my co-hosts. This episode was in fact voted for by our lovely patrons over on patreon.com. So you've only so yourself to blame. Exactly. <laughs> this is all, this is all your fault patrons. And if you'd like to take some of the blame for voting on episodes and stuff, you can go to patreon.com/sequelizers and join those lovely people and be able to vote on episodes and get exclusive merch and exclusive merch discounts and bonus entire interseason episodes and outtakes and shout outs on the live stream and if you become an executive producer you can pick your own film for us to sequelize and an interseason episode if you hang around for that as well. And you also get a shout out like these lovely gentlemen do. I'm going to count Seven. to ten. You're going to tell me where the rabbit's foot is. Or she dies. Andy Steen. One. You listen to me. I got exactly what you asked for. Did you want something else? Michael Belcher. Two. Listen to me. Josh Miles. Three. All right. All right, all right. I know where the rabbit's foot is. I can help you. Josh van der Sluis. Four. The rabbit's foot's in Paris. You want to know where in Paris? 
to let her go, because you will it's never. Not in Paris. Mike Salvia. Five. I can get it for you. But you killed her. You do this. Xenos. Are you listening to me? The only way you're gonna get what you want is for you to. You think I'm playing? You don't think I'll do it? Where is it? Where the hell is it? Look at me. Where the hell is it? And Jonathan Firth Clark. Thank you for your support. As always, we very much appreciate everyone on patreon.com slash sequelizers. You make this possible. You make the whole extended into season and the extended seasons now we've been doing for three seasons oh my god the new format has been around for so long it feels it still feels new to me but i know we've been doing this for so long now and this new and latest iteration of the sequelizers that is bigger and more powerful than ever is all thanks to the lovely support from the people on our patreon page so you can thank them for this episode because they voted for opening scenes which i think is a very interesting choice what were they up against uh for the vote gentlemen opening scenes and closing scenes and post-credit scenes ah there you go so uh people want it was, to it was quite about. close between all three of them yeah yeah it was quite it was one of the tightest because we often get on our patreon things you get one clear winner where it's clear our audience is very interested in one particular topic or one of the films that is picked here and it was actually a fairly even split, which was nice to see. But uh, mm. yeah, the the season nine vote is already here. It's it's looming upon us. Season nine is looming. We're already halfway through the interseason, and yeah, this is voted for. And if you'd like to join us, you can vote as well. Coming up in the season and future interseasons, it's gonna be gonna be a lot of fun. But let's talk about some opening scenes, shall we? Because yeah, there's, there's a lot to talk about. It seems like a kind of oh yeah, it's an easy obvious topic, and I think a few of the topics we've done on in season seem like a oh we'll we'll bash this out in forty five minutes kind of thing. Oh no, not us. We like to do a three hour recording session for just talking about accents in films, or just talking about something <laughs> very very simple, or we go very wide and like let's talk about the entire history of Studio Ghibli, for example, or we go for something like opening scenes, something a little bit interesting, a little bit different. People often talk uh, sort of in, in writing circles about how hard it is to get the start of your novel right. And it's something that writers labour over a lot. Um, and I think that films are kind of similar in that. Everybody, especially when you're doing, in, you're in the screenwriting part of the equation, everybody wants to grab you from page one. Um, and I think, you know, for the most part, although obviously this is changing as the way we consume films is changing, you know, the idea is if you if you sat down in the cinema, you've pro you've already get you've you've paid your money, you know, so it kind of yeah. doesn't matter so much if the if the opening scene doesn't blow your socks off. But a, it's nice to hook the audience from the word go and go like, hey, wake up, this is going to be good. But also, I guess it's kind of becoming more important almost in the world of you know, streaming and things going straight to digital distribution because if that opening 10, 15 minutes of film doesn't grab you, you might just stop it. You might just turn it off. I have done that. It's very rare that I stop a film once I've started, but I, I've done it more recently than I ever have in the past um, because, you know, there's, there's, there's so little kind of investment if you're not 
if you haven't paid for the ticket price and gone to the cinema, if you're just watching something on Netflix and you decide, yeah, I'll give Michael Bay one more chance and put on Six Underground and then start having a migraine and go, fuck this. Um, it's more effort to walk out of a cinema than it is just turn something off on your TV. Exactly. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so some could argue that opening scenes are becoming more important uh, as, t- as time goes on. There used to be an old uh, Hollywood adage that if you don't have them in the first 30 minutes, you'll never have them at all. And I think Tim's right. You've, they've just halved it. It needs to be with you. Even over the next 10 Attention minutes, Attention spans have shortened. You, you need to catch yeah. us, motherfuckers. <laughs> and weirdly enough, I think that's also true in podcasting as well. I think a lot of people like discover a new podcast or hear a clip or, you know, we post those teaser clips to, to our social media and stuff. And if we don't grab you with that little teaser clip, I'm like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Oh, that's interesting. Or we get, you know, a particular well, group of fans or whatever, like, descend upon us, as, as has happened before. Capturing them with little teasers like, you know, we talked about trailers in the past and that, and that kind of thing. The opening scene is essentially setting the rest of the film up. And like you said, Tim, with streaming services and the ease of just being like, you spend almost more time scrolling through the streaming service than you do actually watching the film. You find yourself just like, oh, I don't, do I have an action comedy or do I fancy very specific 18th century romance? Like, no, not really. Like, scrolling through. And then the categories get more and more specific as you go, and you finally settle on something, and you're like, actually, no, I'm not. I'm really not in the mood for this. Let's try something else. And I come back out again. It's like, oh my God. Or it has that banger of an open scene, and you're like, oh, oh, okay. You, In the words of uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Django Unchained, you have my curiosity, now you have my attention. <laughs> like, you get that. Leads you in with, like, a description on the streaming service or whatever it is, or a poster or whatever it may be, and then they get you with that opening scene. I think it's, yeah, like you said, more important now than ever. Uh, especially since they've actually um, mirrored that, as you say earlier, with trailers. You now get, like, this pre-trailer oh, for the trailer to make te- sure you don't a, a tease of a tease of a teaser <laughs> yeah. trailer. Because obviously the, the teaser they're, 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 comes out in three days. You're like, what? I don't. Well, even like if you've got a tra- if you've got a trailer on social media like uh, in, in Instagram or Facebook or even YouTube, it'll go. The trailer starts now, and then you have the actual trailer start, and you're like, what was this? And then you skipped it. They play they play the entire film in super super fast mode, and then the trailer starts. Here's the three beats, and the trailer starts. So the film is 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 a weird one because there's a a lot of examples of. I mean, just to contradict what was said earlier, some people saying like, you know, the way you start a novel or a book or a a narrative story is sometimes the most difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, and it's definitely one people focus on the most. Sometimes it's the the easiest one to start. And you're like, because it's it's got all the intrigue. It doesn't actually have to be the main character showing. It could be setting up the world, the environment, the characters, a pre- cursor thing a flashback and everything we've got all, all these things later don't worry but it can be something that isn't necessarily related to what you think of as the film later and that's why a lot of these things tend to be their like the, some of the like the best opening scenes is the best thing about that fucking movie and the rest of it's just <laughs> yeah, it's fine but i would say i would say that a lot of scripts have fantastic openings that are interesting and bold and strong and clever until a couple of producers see it and if a couple of producers see it, suddenly it's like, what, why isn't, what's, what's happening? I don't, I don't understand who, who is it, what, what's going on? And then suddenly you need like another five fucking openings beforehand. And we get, as we discussed at the start of the end of the season, a John Carter situation where it starts straight off with Mars. And you're like, don't, 
don't start here. This is not a good place to start. <laughs> start with John. So because when we see Mars with him, it makes more fucking sense. That kind of stuff. Um, or you have like, this doesn't, this isn't working for me. Put in the big, put in a big action sequence now. It's like, I, I can't, that's ruining the whole pace of the film. I don't really want that. Doesn't matter. The audience will be bored by then. That kind of thing. So there are times when it's a really smart thing to do to, as you say, hook them right from the get go. And other times you want to sort of sidle up to them a little bit and say like, hi, we're going to start the film. Okay. Are we, have, we, have we started? Are we, is this part of it? Let's just, let's wait and see. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh God, this is part of the film. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting you say like there's the chance to do something different in the opening. Uh, it's it kind of works in the same way that like there's a tendency for action scenes in the second act tend to be better than action scenes in the third act because by the third act you know that the the good guys are going to win. You know, that if it's your final action scene, you kind of know that the villain is going to get defeated unless you're watching something that's that's willing to subvert those tropes. But in the second act, you're like Oh well, you know he still needs to like there needs to be a big setback before you know before we get to the end of the film. So so there's there's more stakes essentially, even though it might not be the big finale action scene. There's more there's more room. There's more you know space in the film for something to go wrong, and it's kind of the same with the opening of the film. Openings tend, broadly speaking, like most trailers tend to show you kind of the stuff from the meat of the film, and the opening is often something different because it's you know it, because they are you know they're, they're doing something a little off kilter maybe to kind of get you into the film and so it tends to be stuff you haven't seen before if you've been following the the, the promotion the marketing of a film and yeah it's it's an opportunity to you know maybe approach this subject you know sideways like you say put the spotlight on someone who's not actually the hero but is a way into the world because essentially you know that's the the opening scene doesn't necessarily have to introduce the hero but it has to introduce both ideally it has to introduce the world of the film and the kind of thematic scope of the film it has to say like okay we may not even have met your hero yet but here is an idea about the the themes we're going to be dealing with the emotions we're going to be hitting the tone that we want you to get on board with that that literally is exactly it the four things I think of when you introduce the start of a film is hero, villain, setting, tone. Yep. One of those things. You don't do all of them, but your film should be Ideally introducing one or one two of, of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, precisely. And it will. And if all the big ones, all the best ones you can think of, you thought, oh, wow. It's like, but did you see a main character? Yeah. And, you know, and then the hero comes in and their eyes come into silhouette from shadow. Fucking great. Oh, that's, I know that's my hero. That's how films going to start. Or even anti-hero. Or the protagonist, shall we say. If it's a if it's a villain, you're like, oh, they do a dastardly thing. Oh, fuck, there's someone to be met, not to be mm. trifled with. It yeah. sets that the threat is going. Um, you have the setting, which is like, here's what we're going to be showing off and establishing as where the story takes place, or the tone, as you say, the thematics. What is the principle of what this story is about? And then you get that a lot with horror. You tend to get the first kill, as it were. It's not usually the main character. It's not even really the villain. Sometimes it's just the the feeling of suspense and despair. That that tonality. Of, this is what you can expect going in. Interestingly, we've touched upon this a little bit because we talked about Bond in his various forms throughout the years in, in earlier episodes. Whenever I think opening scene, I think cold open. And for those of you who don't know, that is where you, another phrase for it is in media res, where you are, you are basically thrown into the action. And this is your main character in this case, in my example, James Bond, mid-mission. And you're literally like, 
the famous example is Roger Moore on this on this with the ski snope and the the snowmobile and all that kind of stuff. Like you don't know what's going on, and then a guy just starts skiing down a slope. You're like, oh my god, we're in the middle. Of, the action scene is right now. It's happening right in front of your face. And then eventually you get to the opening credits. Another thing we've talked about previously on the show as well, talking about credit scenes and all that kind of stuff. You're thinking about this is an action spy thriller. You know, this is Roger Moore's Bond. This is Daniel Craig's Bond. We're going straight in. And in fact, the different Bonds and their opening scenes and often cold opens are able to set different tones or establish different villains or establish that type of Bond as the character. Like, Daniel Craig's opening scene sets the tone for Craig's Bond being like, this ain't Pierce Brosnan, motherfucker. This, this, <laughs> there ain't no invisible cars and bullshit. We are grounded. This is black and white. This is this is dark this is and a, grim. This is a man beating up another man in a public toilet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I would say, however, I and this, maybe we'll, maybe we'll just circle this for a second. I think. And did we discuss this in a Bond episode? I don't know if we did in our two Bond episodes. Go back and listen to him. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I think the best Bond cold open is in fact Goldeneye. Yeah. I very nearly picked Golden Eye. Golden is a great choice. Yeah. My You see a plane, my... you think, oh, is it a plane? It's like, nope, man, Bungie jumps off a fucking dam. You're like, holy shit! Yep. Goes in, meets Iconic. up another agent. Oh, 006. Then finally, all goes to shit. He he escapes off, off the runway, tries to catch the plane, gets in the plane. <laughs> Golden Eye's like, this is this is I don't think the movie I mean the movie's I think Golden Eye's great, but I think it's I think that's fantastic. It's one of the best Bond openings genuinely ever. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think yeah. A lot of that kind of action, spy, thrillery kind of stuff mm. really benefits from getting that cold open, getting that you're straight into the middle of the action. You get an idea of what to expect. And because I think a lot of people from the other side of things take something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, for example, keeping mm, with the keeping yeah. with the spy theme here, that is such a different approach to, to the spy genre. We've talked about the Bourne films before in a previous episode. We've talked about Bond before. You go straight in with the action and you understand this is grounded, this is real, or this is wacky bullshit in terms of Roger Moore and some of the Brosnan stuff. <laughs> and then, like you said, Goldeneye is a bit of a masterpiece. And so, as also as you touched upon earlier, Tim, like that is some of the best bits of the movie is the epic dive off the dam. And like when you think of Goldeneye, that's one of the first things I think of is that scene. Mm -hmm. And not just because it's first, just because it is so visually striking. And it's not necessarily front loading, but like having something that is visually interesting, and as you said, Matt, does one of those four things to set up the rest of the film is so important and so key for grabbing mm -hmm. my attention. I don't think I've ever walked out of the cinema, but I've thought like, oh God, what am I in for now? Or in the case of Matt and I watching Cats together, <laughs> what, the, what the fuck is this? That when it descends into it, we'll we'll do an episode on cats. We promise. <laughs> I, I, Tim has not yet seen cats, and Matt and I saw cats together, and I mm -hmm. basically haven't stopped talking about cats since. <laughs> and I'm determined, determined to show. We Tim. call him Jellical Jack now. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and that opening scene, unfortunately, does set the tone for the rest of the film because it is like this horrific atonal descent into madness where you're not sure who, who's human and who's cat and whatever the fuck is going on it's like, well shit. yep they kind of nailed it because i'm terrified and confused and for the next two hours i'm also going to be terrified and confused 
as, as a very quick similar jump in there, Batman Forever sets the tone very quickly with a similar thing because it shows you it's a cartoon and it's the whole, should I pack a sandwich, sir? I'll get drive through. Oh, it's this kind of yeah, movie. Yeah. Oh, it's it, that kind you, of Batman film. Yeah. You know very quickly. Mm. And what, the thing is, if you sink into that and go, oh, okay, fine, you go along with it and it's not as bad. But if you don't, you're expecting a Michael Keaton moment. You're like, no, <laughs> this isn't <laughs> the penguin being thrown into a river. This is different. Yeah. I think there is something uniquely memorable about like opening shots and opening scenes. And I think it's, you know, part of it is just the the very pure nature of for the rest of the film that you you are within the context of the movie. Those opening moments, what you have preceding them is you sitting in darkness. Mm. <laughs> you know, even if it even if it's only five seconds, you know, of of you know, they throw up the, you know, here's here's what certificate the film has got, signed off by, you know, whoever. You have a moment of just quiet, hopefully depending on what cinema you're in, you know, and then you maybe get the studio uh, graphics and, and, and stuff like that. But then you have that moment of just kind of like, and now here the film comes. And for something like, for example, a Star Wars film, you know, it has that incredibly bombastic opening where it's like... Before anything happens, before you even see fucking text, there is a fanfare to get your attention. Yeah, and and I think that that, because you've had that just that moment of quiet beforehand, it is prepping you. Your brain is suddenly, your brain kind of goes like, oh, it's quiet. What? Give me something. Give me something. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to do imagine things. No, 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 no. I need input. Input. Is, is it broken? <laughs> and and interestingly, Star Wars often then fades to the space, like it goes and goes all quiet, yeah. and then just you left like looking at space, and then you, like so you yeah. see the 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 epic ship coming down, and like what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Seeing that for the first time, like wait, wait, where are we? What is that thing? Oh, it's a oh, it's a spaceship. Oh, it's being chased. Oh my god, we're in the middle of the mm-hmm. action. This is amazing. I, and you, I, I, I remember there. people talking about seeing that you know in the in seventy seven, and having the having the the blockade runner go past, and them going like, oh wow, that's an awesome spaceship, and then the fucking star destroyer starts coming over, and you go like, oh wow. Wait, what? Will it still go? <laughs> what? Holy shit! It, um, this was the joke in Spaceballs, wasn't it? The eternal ship. Yeah, like holy yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to take us back a little bit just for a bit of history here. We 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 will all think of opening scenes, and we will all think of this very distinct period of cinema and home viewing of movies as such, as as you guys just described, sitting there in the dark. You've had all like you know 20 minutes of fucking ads, 10 minutes of trailers, and like come the fuck on. Here we go. Right, film's going to start. And if you're in certain countries, you get like a, 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 a certificate from whoever the governing board of the movie association is like, come on, come on, come on. As Tim said, a couple of seconds of black and then, right, logos, music, whatever it happens to be, go, go, go. And it starts either slowly or big, bombastic, whatever it is, it, it begins and then you get bits and pieces. This is not how movies used to be. Movies used to be, here are all of the credits right at the start, because there weren't, you know, a fuck ton like there are. It's not like, you know, 20 minutes of credits. It was a short, like, you know, you get a musical interlude and you get the credit sequence starting and then find the movie goes straight into it. So when it says the end, it's the end and you get the fuck out. There's no hanging around other credits. It's just like you get all the stuff at the start. Uh, like the Maltese Falcon, for example, starts. And yeah, I think you have the, the image of the actual Falcon itself, you know, hidden in uh, 
in 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 the, the sort of black paint, and it's like oh, it's very interesting, and it has all the t- title text, and it's that's kind of the interesting thing because you would end up with films also leading into that with a slow burn. You get into this idea of setting the scene, setting a location, getting people settled down. Are you all here? Where is everybody seated? Let's go. I mean, yeah, there are some examples where it just kicks the fuck off, but for the majority of the time, it would say like, bang, here is where we are. Here's where the story's going. Here's our hero. Here's a in the same way we you someone will go walk on a stage in a theatre play and start, you know, doing an opening monologue kind of stuff. Um, that changed with certain big epic productions in the 50s and 60s with things like Lawrence Arabia opening with a black screen and the music playing. And you had like a bit of an interlude where you're like, and now we're gonna play the music. I think we're gonna do what we're gonna do what? Just appreciate the music, <laughs> you fucks. You can stretch your legs in the intermission. You're like, okay, fine. And they get through that. And then Star Wars does the very bombastically bold thing of saying, like, no credits at the start, just this title saying Star Wars and the opening crawl, like the old serials. And you're like, well, that's different. And then the film starts. And again, similarly now, sometimes we have, almost always we have a a minute of logos. So you've got minutes of logos. Maybe someone's talking over the top. Maybe it's news articles. Like, um, I Am Legend, for example, opens with them talking about how, you know, Emma Thompson's character saying how they cured cancer. Then it cuts to like... Empty ass New York, everything's flooded, one car's driving through that. What the fuck happened? And that's the intrigue, the question that pulls me like, I need to know what. And that's the, that's the, we talk about grabbing people. If you can do that, and like the Star Wars with the, the Star Destroyer, it's like, where is this going? Is this thing going to survive? Holy shit. You don't know anything, but you want to know so much more. And that's the important thing about the opening of a film. Now we can, as we'll discuss in a minute, we'll talk about where that starting, you know, starts and ends, but that feeling has to come in. And I think we associate with very contemporary with movies and instead of producers suddenly jumping in saying like, for example, Avatar, as in James Cameron's Avatar. Very few people remember how that film opens. Yeah, I could, I could not tell you how that film starts. Or ends, or has anything. Yeah, or, yeah or most, even, most yeah. of the middle is also It starts as wolves but... with blue tentacle sex. <laughs> like, yeah, well, uh, yeah. Fucking Terminator. We all know that fucking film opens. Terminator 2. That, that's some big future war shit. That's, that, that's fantastic. That's great. So there are films that you go, God damn, that's cool. Um, the Thing has an opening... Again, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. We'll get to this in a minute. Well, let's talk about it now. Like, let's how, do it now, then. Let's do, do it. You, how do you define <laughs> an opening sequence? Because what we said, some of these films have a very clear cutoff. I use Bond as an example because there is such a clear... Here mm. is an opening mm. scene, and then... Credits for three minutes, and like you get the... You get the theme song, whoever's singing that, oh, blah, 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 and there's all these cool effects and stuff, and then you fade back into the movie. Or with Star Wars, you get the, you know, the opening crawl, and then it leads into the opening scene. Some films have a very clear way of denoting, like, this is the opening scene, this is a cold open, this is a whatever, and then here is the rest of the movie after that. Some of them don't. <laughs> and yeah. and some, some of the examples we've t- we will be talking about later on, as is always the case with the interseason stuff, We'll start off general, and then we'll talk about some of our favourites, some weird ones, yes, some interesting yes. ones, and give some examples specifically later on. It's weird where it kind of just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going, and we'll definitely talk about this later on. You get those films where it's like, is the first five minutes the opening scene or the first twenty-five minutes? I'm not sure because this mm. can it can carry on going, and it could be the journey of one character through particular moments or particular scenes or whatever it is, and then. 
there's no clear like you could get a time jump or a like I said a credit scene or a something or a title card or whatever it is to kind of break everything up but some films don't do that and it's kind of one big scene and you're like oh oh it's now a different scene and it's 45 minutes into this film (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean one of the ones that I almost picked uh, I was talking to Matt about this beforehand was Inglorious Bastards which has the amazing scene on the uh the 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 farm with uh Christoph Waltz yep. interrogating. That is I mean that is that is definitely one single scene. Yes. It doesn't change location, it follows the same characters, you know, the, all of those kind of things where you 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 might make make arguments for other scenes of like oh you know well is it really you know the thing cuz we follow him from from this location to that location is it still the same scene etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Sure. That's definitely one scene. But it lasts twenty minutes. Yes, you you yep. are twenty minutes into that film before you have changed, and I almost felt like oh, well, I can't pick that because it's you know for other films that's like a a quarter of the runtime. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I think you absolutely can because I think filmmakers do that kind of shit on purpose because especially in the modern era. I know we're talking about you know a, a what twelve year old, thirteen year old, fourteen year old movie at this point in, in *Inglorious Bastards*. However old that movie is it still feels relatively new in the grand scope of cinema. And people are always trying to do something different and do something unexpected and unpredictable, especially with the opening scene, to differentiate themselves from the rest of the pack, especially, as we're saying, with, like, we now have the options. Matt can go to the cinema once, you know, pandemic and blah, 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 three, four, five times a week. You can sit and watch four or five movies in a row on Netflix and it will just go... Are you still alive? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. So in order to grab your attention, films need to be doing something different. If you're, you know, versed in, in films and cinema and all the history and stuff, as someone like Matt is, and, and to an extent me and Tim are as well, from watching so many films throughout the years, you kind of can predict like, oh yeah, this is a thing, I can see what's going on here. Oh, they're doing that thing, that's kind of similar to that previous movie. Whereas if you do something, and as much as I don't like Tarantino in a lot of ways he does do some clever stuff and some clever tricks with some of his films and in in terms of pacing and editing and structure and all that kind of stuff that opening scene of Inglorious Bastards it's so long on purpose because the tension is insane yes and the length of it and how drawn out it is is so purposeful it it would still you could easily do that scene in five six seven minutes whatever it is Mm. but the fact that Hans Lander spends so much time there and has a full conversation, speaks for like 10 minutes, and then is like, Oh, I've exhausted all of my French. And I'm like, Have you though? Are you just, you're, <laughs> it's, it's all this like building up this psychological mind game type stuff that the, the Nazi is, you know, toying with these Jews, toying with these civilians, and going in cold. Again, this is a time before we knew Christoph Waltz as we know him today. This was his big breakout role in English-speaking cinema. And unless you've been paying attention to, you know, German-speaking cinema previously, you're like, who the fuck is this guy? And is he speaking French? And then he speaks English. And he also speaks German. Who the fuck is this guy? Oh, God, he's (laughs) fucking terrifying. He's done literally nothing, and he's absolutely terrifying. All he's done is drink a glass of milk and then hold his glass of milk, like, in a really childish, (laughs) weird way. I'm 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 doing it on the camera for the for, yeah, yeah. for the listeners, by the way. Have have a comically huge pipe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's this weird like the the comedy and the slow pace of it 
is so purposeful because it just continues to build that tension. And as much as it does kind of set the tone for the rest of the movie, because there are plenty of other tense scenes, you know, with the the bar and the the German three thing that happens, Mm. you're like, oh God, oh no, oh, they've realized that kind of stuff. There are moments there, but I don't think, I think that's the best scene in the film. I think that is the height of tension and establishes especially Christoph Waltz's performance as Hans Lander, who is now like, you know, this legendary villain in cinema, basically Mm. because of that scene. And the fact that he references it later on with the delicious glass of milk that he does later on. You're like, (laughs) oh God, he knows. Oh no, he's eating strudel or whatever the fuck it is. Oh God. And then, yeah, that tension is broken once again. You're like, oh, thank God. And that scene does such an amazing job, but I, like I said, I think it it sets too much of the good tone, and then it's like, <laughs> and the rest of the film, well, there's a bunch of stuff that's okay and good and fine, and then there's some brilliant bits, and then there's some okay bits, but that scene is so good and brilliantly paced and spectacularly performed in multiple languages. It just like, yeah, I totally agree with you, Tim. It's, it's a it's an interesting examination of what you can do with an open scene and try and like push those boundaries in a way. One thing Tarantino can definitely unequivocally be, be complimented on his is feet, his love of feet, his love of feet, <laughs> his absolute obsession with feet. No, uh, is the fact that almost every single film he's ever done of his main oeuvre have fucking great openings. And they're so fragmented in the storytelling and all over the place in general. I mean, Reservoir Dogs starts with them just having a normal ass conversation at breakfast. He doesn't tip. He doesn't oh, believe. Yeah, it. the the Madonna mm. conversation. And yeah, that kind Madonna's, of yeah, yeah, Madonna's big dick. Um, Madonna's blue period. <laughs> and um, Jackie Brown's just the going through the airport with the 110th Street going. Mm. It's, it's uh, just um, Kill Bill opens up with Bill. It's your baby. Bang. Oh like, God. Yeah. Of course. There's so much like, because again, it grabs you. Your... It, it really pulls you the fuck in, and that's what's kind mm. of kind of cool about it. Um, but again, this isn't necessarily true. Also, I, I, I can. Get, Another one is classically Pulp Fiction with the yeah. conversation <laughs> between uh, Ringo and um, Honey Bunny. And Listen, all you fucking pigs, move! Yeah. I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a fucking grab you opener kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I, I, I've got you now, you're not going fucking anywhere. Now, admittedly, depending on how you like his films or his style and that there's people, blah, 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 that's, that's neither here nor there. But if you show those opening pieces, almost all of them are very subdued conversation or narration that draws you in think oh this must be this is fine right and then it just and then they escalate yeah they're all a rug pull yeah um but it it is interesting because with regards to where does it start a classic one that people always think like oh fuck me i want to tell one of the greatest most important movie scenes i've ever seen that opened a movie changed how i saw cinema saving private ryan and you go yeah um that's not the opening of the movie but yeah it is it's the d-day landings it's fucking crazy no, it's not. It's it's an old man across yep. a, a field of gravestones. And it's like, and, oh. And I literally did the same thing for one of my picks. Literally before we started recording, <laughs> I had the words Guardians of the Galaxy written down. And I thought, God, that scene really sets the tone for the rest of the movie. And just like, it's got great music. Chris Pratt's doing his thing. And you're like, which scene do you mean, Jack? And I was like, well, the open. I mean, I haven't seen it in a few years, but the opening scene of them, you know, the dancing bit with the singing into the space rat and stuff. It's like, or do you mean his mum dying? I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good point. 
I'm like, wait, which and one does come for? Oh, shit, it is the mum. I don't want that scene because that does not right, so, set the rest of the time for the rest of the movie. But it, but it, it shows the emotional importance of the movie. It tells you what's happening that he's been taken off. Mm. It's important, but at the same time, it's not the one that's stuck in your head. So, yeah. it's, it sets up the character. It, it's, a, it's a, as we said, the four things. It sets yeah. up Quill as a character and his motivations. But it does not set the tone for the rest of the movie because tone, then it cuts. Not really, yes. Uh, setting, not exactly because it's on Earth in the in the eighties. Vi- villain, no character, hero, yes. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, his connections to Earth, his connection to the music that his mum gave him, mm-hmm. and of course the emotional at the end. That that that's why Guardians One is so fucking good. The emotional gut wrenching path when he's reaching for the power stone and sees his mum dying. And it's like, oh no, no, keep it in, keep it in. That kind of shit, and you don't want to cry and shit. That's really well done, and it's because that opening incepted, like just that, just tiny uh, seed in the back of your mind. Yeah, this sort yeah. of uh, Chekhov's gun kind of thing. Mm. But it's an interesting thing our memories do, where you're like, if there is a really great scene close to the beginning, <laughs> your kind, yes. your brain kind of wants to make it the opening. Something great it's in the, the moment. First Fifteen minutes, I was like, yes, that one, totally that yeah. one. <laughs> it's it, if it's the moment where you sit up and take notice. It's kind of it kind of is the opening because it's mm-hmm. the moment where you started paying attention to the film <laughs> yeah. and it hadn't it hadn't got you until then yeah. and and I mean Matt said it, it kind of incepts the, the the emotional arc into your brain in Guardians and it's kind of yeah because like that I mean I can remember when it when when Guardians came out there was discussion of like oh you know like oh it's going to be this wacky space opera is like oh yeah and then it opens with like a person dying of cancer yeah. um and and there was you know some discussion of that opening scene but but yeah I think for the majority of people, the thing that they remember from the start of that film is like, oh yeah, he goes into the, you know, it starts off all grim and serious, like he's, you know, sort of Star Wars style, expanding the, exploring these ruins, and mm-hmm. then, you know, and then he starts dancing around, and it's great fun, and then well, it's it's a funny thing. Yeah, and that is a prime example of, like, like Lord of War has one of the greatest title sequences, but it's not the opening titles, it's a title sequence, it's not an opening scene. Guardians with the and all him dancing mm. around with the rat and shit. That's the opening titles because all the titles are going along around him. He's dancing mm. through the title sequence. It's and yes, okay, it leads into one of the proper opening scenes of him doing the sort of Indiana Jones style thing. Which again, by the way, Raiders is arguably one of the best scenes of all time in that opening because mm-hmm. it 100%. tells you about the setting, the tone, the character, and arguably the villain. Well, not arguably, completely villain. So it it um. It tells you all four. And if you can get all four in one scene that is iconic and fun and does all that shit, it's like, you have done it. I mean, <laughs> in a weird way, kind of. I'm trying to think. Uh, some of them don't do that are the most iconic ones. So, for example, The Lion King in Jurassic Park. Two huge early 90s openers that stick out in people's minds immediately are some of the greatest of all time. The bad guy isn't introduced in The Lion King. The scene afterwards where he's talking to the little mouse, the scars, that's mm. the scene that Scar's introduced, but it's Mufasa and Simba and bang, and the, mu- the pairing of the music and the visuals, fuck me, that's a great opening. Yeah, that's iconic. And again, sorry kids, we're not picking it, but we should, but you know. Jurassic Park, however, shows you the fucking villains. It's, well, the corporation, but you see the raptors <laughs> the villains yeah it's the humans it's, yeah yeah no the, the 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 true villain of the piece poor health and safety regulations yes exactly <laughs> Thank you, one man has to manually lift a crate are you stupid that's bad for his back first of all let alone the fact there's a wild animal in there um yes so it shows you it doesn't show the heroes of the character but it shows the setting it says a tone and it shows arguably the antagonistic character i.e 
capitalism um, and dinosaurs. <laughs> but also it does the Jaws thing because Jaws doesn't show you the villain, but you see the effect. Um, mm. Another great example, It Follows. In fact, no, It Follows, Halloween, Scream. You get so many setups of the threat, but you don't see uh, arguably the main characters. Sometimes you don't really even see the villain, sort of. Well, yeah, see... I, I think setting up a villain like that, you use horror in an example, then, like It Follows mm. and stuff like that. Having the mystery of the villain and, yes. and Jaws so incredibly define that once you've shown the shark, you can't unsee the shark, you know, that. Yes. Once the shark is out of the box, you can't put it back in again. That is so true, especially for... No, 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 Jack, Jack, sorry. man goes in the cage, cage goes in the water. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I keep putting the shark in the box in the cage, and the man gets eaten and it goes horribly wrong. I, shark trying goes to in the box. Life. Shark doesn't come out of the box. <laughs> and then we jump the shark. Because so much of horror is built around the unknown, and what your imagination it can, can conceive is so much more scary than... Oh, it's a big animatronic shark. If you're not already yeah. swept up because it's the opening scene, you haven't built any like goodwill or establishment with that audience yet. You haven't gone, oh, I'm an hour into this movie. I'm so caught up. I don't even notice that there's an animatronic shark. I just think, oh, fuck, it's the shark. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> the opening scene, you don't have that. And I think Jurassic Park is a perfect example as well because you think, God, that's terrifying. You don't see the fucking raptors. You don't see them rip off an you arm. You see a bit or of a face, that's you it. You see a face through the, like, mm-hmm. future Basically just an eye. An yes, eye through the cage. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the guy being dragged in and the shooter thing. But that man is screaming. He's being dragged up and down and across. Yeah. It's like, holy, what is doing yeah. this? What he's been dragged in. This? And then he gets lifted up and you're like, oh, fuck, where's this? And then screaming. And then, and then like, right, yeah. he's dead. Fuck it. Kill the thing. Like, we don't have a choice. It's like, that sets up such a threat and sets up the raptors to be something scared of, because obviously you're going to be scared of T-Rex. T-Rex is fucking 40 feet tall. It can run nearly as fast as a Jeep for some reason and will eat lawyers off toilets. (laughs) Fucking terrifying. You don't think the raptors are the more scary of the two until the film starts laying laying little breadcrumbs and going, hey, they're they're the intelligent ones. They're the ones that hunt in packs. They're the ones that, even if you don't move, they will just jump on you. Oh, by the way, they have this giant claw. Oh, by the way, they were the ones in the opening scene that murdered that guy and they freaked yeah. out and they had to shoot him. Like They're setting up the raptors as the really, really scary thing because you think, oh, they're, they're little things. And in real life, they're like a turkey size, but we'll, we're not going yeah. to that. They're, like they're covered, covered in feathers school. and look like turkeys, basically. But turkeys are fucking terrifying in real life, for the record. <laughs> or fight, fight a fucking turkey with a giant claw. But it's a brilliant way of setting up things, and Jaws does the same thing. You see, like you said, Matt, the aftermath of that and the the tension building up as you get closer and closer to the swimmer, and then you don't see, oh, big teeth, oh, a big shark like jumps out of the water and catches this woman and all this crazy stuff. Mm. It, it's the tension. It's the the mystery there, and you think, like, well, what the fuck was that? Obviously, it's probably a shark. It's called Jaws, and the post has a big picture of a shark. <laughs> But you want to know where this is going. And I think horror in particular really does a great job. Well, good horror, good horror films benefit from really good opening scenes that yeah. set up the mystery. I'll tell you another one that's really fucking good for horror. Because again, I don't think enough people have seen this fucking movie. 2020's The Invisible Man. Oh, yeah. 
because the that's horror great. I've still not it, seen it oh god okay I can tell you the opening scene because it, it doesn't give too much away there's a very uh, it's probably the tensest scene of the movie and that movie's full of tense scenes um, essentially in The Invisible Man it's a remake of this, and it opens up with something that is very creepy so this is the Lee Whannell film I should point out and Elizabeth Moss is in this really luxurious apartment building it's like, wow. But it's like very much on its own. It's like, you know, it's, it's very isolated. And she just opens her eyes in the night and very slowly takes the arm of her partner off her and creeps out from under the bed as it, as it, the sheets and then gets from under the bed some documents, very quietly sneaks around the house, gets bits and pieces, does these things. And you're like, oh God, I don't know what's happened here, but she needs to get the fuck out. <laughs> she needs to get, and could, because it's a woman, and because we know how these situations go, we just assume this guy must be a prick. Go fucking go. And there's a wonderful moment where she's descended down into the it's like basement area and you see this interesting lab and she looks at this area of a room and she goes, oh, I wonder what that is. And later on in the, in the film, it explains what it is and it's fucking fantastic. But the point is, she has moments where she like accidentally kicks a, a dog bowl full of food and she's trying to drug this guy. It's so fucking tense. And the scene ends with her and her sister and it's like just drive 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 and this window being smashed in it's like fuck i need to i need to i just need to sit down for a second <laughs> you are mm. sitting down well i don't know how much i want to sit down more <clears throat> and then i need to stand up for a second yeah yeah i need to do something and and that's the thing about this movie and the opening of it everything about that introduces again setting tone lead uh and antagonist and it's like shit and all of them scared the fuck out of me. Oh <laughs> God! It's it's a it's a, it's a, it's a as I say, there's so many things that put you into this moment and that scene as well. I think 10, 15 minutes is what we'd kind of think is a long opening sequence, um, but we'd still count it as one. But in terms of just to come back to our sort of like um, clarification, shall we say, what defines an opening scene? There are many opening scenes that show you lots of stuff, cutting around back and forth, doing all kinds of things. Where people say, well, that can't count as an opening scene. It's like but it is an opening scene because it's separate from the movie. And, and almost like, even though there's like, I've shown four or five different scenarios, four or five different characters, you know, you, you can get a montage for an opening scene. Like, uh, I'm sure The Terminal, for example, ha the Steven Spielberg film, Steven Spielberg for a second, has tons of things saying what an airport's like and the life of an airport is an open ups, if I remember correctly. But the point is, you see so much, you take on so much information and you're like getting so much of a feel for the crazy hectic world of this thing we see as a as a, as a sort of a thing we're very used to now but at the same time can you call it a scene if it's just a montage can you say these things are another great example 2001 a space odyssey where does the opening scene end because you've got the the monolith and you've got the monkeys and the cheetah comes down and attacks them and stuff and they beat it and, they, and there's and that creepy ass fucking music <laughs> And then you know, they chuck the bone in the sky and it cuts up a spaceship. And you're like, ah, there's the cut. That must be where the opening scene ends, right? And I was like, kind of. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting one. Because like you say, you would traditionally go like, okay, well, we've cut to a completely different time and place with different characters. There's the transition to be between the scene. But the transition is so important. The, 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 the progression from one shot to the next is kind of what that whole opening has been about in a way you know um it's it's what it's been setting up and so it's like well okay then arguably like the the next 
you need to have all of the monkey stuff and the first shot of the space station you know it, it you need to kind of include that to get the full context of the scene even though by every definition like that is not part of that scene yeah yeah i've got i've got two which are similar well wings of desire is a good one because it's just a really big sort of opening shot of 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 berlin in in the 80s and oh, sorry west berlin in the 80s you get so much that it interchanges between it's like well hang on i'm seeing it's it, it starts with sort of aerial shots it's almost literal angels bird's eye view then a shot from on top of this uh on top of the statue then going through people's daily conversations and their thoughts and it's like but it doesn't really stop until the first proper major scene now two two i want to just bring up very quickly one people might know very well because of this show and one people definitely won't know because probably not at all because of the, the, the documentaries one is wrath of khan oh yeah wrath of khan i i wanted to pick <laughs> so badly yeah, wrath of khan, that's why i did the opening title uh open, opening quote sorry Wrath of Khan starts with the Kobayashi Maru, one of the most important things in Star Trek full fucking stop. Defines Kirk, defines everything, and it shows defines everybody... Spock and Kirk and their relationship. Like, yeah. Yeah. And you so you show Savak at the helm, you're like, who the fuck is this? Um, how's she in charge of the Enterprise? And the Enterprise gets blown up, basically. Everybody dies. And like, oh crap. At which point the screen gets pulled back and it's Kirk saying, Well done, everybody is dead. And he's just, oh, it's a testing center mm -hmm. and, and the thing. And she says, What should I what should I have done? And he says, uh, pray, Savak, the Klingons don't take prisoners. It's like, oh, okay, well the scene must stop there. No, because then Kirk and uh Spock and stuff discuss like the no-win scenario, and they have a conversation about his birthday. He gets a book. They go back to his room and they discuss, you know, having like um other stuff you know like him having glasses and things it all keeps going until you cut to the reliant mission until you go to the next thing then it's like ah now we're on a different story where's Chekhov? now we're in something different and it, because you can say like well the opening scene is just the stuff on the training room enterprise deck that's the that's the opening scene you're like no because you still stay with the moment they need each other to exist it's not a clean break um you get the titles beforehand anyway that's why sometimes you have like opening scene title sequence and that's a good cut and jack will do that a lot in his um in his pitches he'll have episodes in bang title card this i've made a point that this is my opening <laughs> i love a good opening man uh, the other one's going to bring up very briefly is a very um a film I'm always, I'm always trying to talk about these things on the podcast and they can never have a good excuse to uh baraka and samsara um and they're both utter masterpieces of cinema but because they're so they're they're, they're no they're they're very music-based, no no commentary-style documentaries, just basically uh, cataloging human existence, and it's fascinating and sh and some of the most beautifully shot stuff you've ever seen. But the opening feels like it has power and majesty. And Baraka is just mountains, and it's just this weight of of the human presence in the in the most uninhabitable places. Samsara opens with uh, Myanmar and this beautiful festival. Cuts immediately to smog and smoke and volcanic ash and then a uh i think it's a bog mummy basically um that we've dug up and just like a, sort of like a contorted face and it's like what the fuck is this and then it goes title uh and samsara goes from literally from the uh the mountains to monkeys in a in a, in a little uh in a hot spring and it's like what it, what am i watching what is this <laughs> and um as with wrath of khan it's like well where does it stop it's like thankfully with samsara and Braca, it goes 
Music swells, title. Okay, right. I, I now know what I'm, in, what I'm getting in for. Wrath of Khan doesn't do that. It's only when it cuts to literally another part and it feels like a clean cut. Unlike the, the, the bone being chucked in space in 2001 Space Odyssey, it's not part of it, but it is in a, in a tangential way. Yeah, and I think like the more experimental, even even in very mainstream films, you can get a slightly kind of odd, like you say, like a montage or something that is attempting to usually establish either setting or tone. Um, I think uh, science fiction, anything that has a lot of world building, often has to do a lot of heavy lifting at the beginning of the film, and I think there's 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 a lot of temptation to do, you know, you, there's there's almost sort of the cliches of this kind of like ponderous, you know, very serious uh, voiceovers showing, well, you know, you, you pan over maps of fantasy kingdoms or whatever. And I think that there are a lot of very bad openings of, of that kind where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to have to explain how our fucking universe works before <laughs> yeah. we can properly start the film. Um I think there are ones that do interesting stuff with that, like Serenity is a good example. Where that it, is a good example. It, it realises that it has some heavy lifting to do, and so it tries it, it tries to do something interesting. And another example of, like, where does that opening stop? Like, I mean, it, it stops when you actually get to the... In, in my view, yes. the opening scene stops when you get to the title scene, uh, the title... The ship. title of the film. The exterior yes, of the ship. And then, I, I would agree. Yeah. Because um, you... But, the, but you've got three or four nested realities like within that opening yeah exactly sequence where you have you have the the initial shot of all the ships leaving earth that's that's built comes from the universal logo you know it's a, a, a logo transition then you have the school scene then you have river and simon escaping the facility scene then you have the operative reviewing that footage and they're all nested within each other and arguably, you could say that's at least three different scenes, you know. And the, the 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 true opening scene is the school, but they all relate to each other. They all feed into each other. They all build on your understanding of that universe. And so they're kind of all one scene. I I think what we're describing here is actually quite difficult because in the same way that whenever you talk to, um. Whenever you talk to an editor, um, it's 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 very difficult to describe. You can talk about you know uh, the art of cinema through cinematography. You can talk about direction. You talk about acting. That's fine. Um, the best book I've ever written is In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch. That's that is a fucking amazing book on film editing. I recommend it extremely highly. It is absolutely essential reading for anybody who's invested in film and the making of film. But if you ask somebody how to edit something. If you ask me, how do I edit my movies? I'm like, I, I don't know. I just feel <laughs> it. And that's the worst thing you can say to somebody because that means that if you either have it or you don't, it's like having an eye for a good, good shot. Luck. Good luck replicating this thing. Yeah, it's like, yeah. can you frame it? It's like, again, it's Deacons. It's like, I can tell you how to frame it, but if I do it myself, it's faster. And like, oh shit, how did even, how did you see that? And editing <laughs> is like, like the description we described, Serenity is a great example. Uh, another two science fiction films that do the same sort of thing without, you know, technically a certain cut at least. Blade Runner, The Matrix, Alien. And the thing here about the editing, there's a lot going on in all three of them, a lot of world building, 
and they're done usually with lots of music and stillness, if anything. And then the Matrix has got a lot of like, you know, a ratty action. It's not, it's not telling you anything, but it's showing you a lot. It's telling you everything you need to know about the movie, but you don't realize because you're not taking it in yet. Because like, holy fuck, what the fuck is this woman doing? It's it takes you in. No, Lieutenant, your men are already dead. Yes, <laughs> that's impossible. Um, yeah, great stuff, but it's a feeling. The second you go, ah, whew, okay, that that moment is when the first scene's over for me. That's when you when you feel a breather. So Alien pans over a thousand consoles really slowly. You have this, you know, transit like a, a bleed transition of these two things, sort of like pods opening up and people slowly waking up. It's such a slow open. It's really a crawl. But you know when it stops. And that's the key thing. If you if you have that knack for editing and you have like seven bits of footage and you want to ping them all together, there is a moment you have a a, a pause of breath. Some people mark that with, as I said, like the title card. Some people mark it with um, the music. The music can incidentally tell you because of a key change, because the musical stop, fade down, fade back in again, all this sort of stuff. It tells you we're at another chapter. Uh, can, again, because that's, that's the thing. These are chaptered parts of a book. The opening stuff with uh, Serenity is a wonderful example because it is, as Tim said, four or five little microcosms in one big thing. But in a book, that would be chapter one or the prologue. Then you'd get to the next scene. It wouldn't be chapter one, ships leave Earth. Chapter two, we're at a school. It's, it's all part of it. And so it's the moment you feel like you've moved on, the moment you feel something has changed. But for a lot of people, you don't know when that happens. You don't, you don't um, necessarily see that transition. Like, say, like um, the opening of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's a very long scene about the argument about swallows. Um, yeah. But again, it's, it's when, it, when it cuts to the next bit, you kind of feel like, yeah, I think we've moved on to the next part now. Uh, Uncut Gems has the, uh, the, the mine um, in Africa where they're, they're, they're digging up this, this opal-style rock and it goes in, but it comes back an, into an the shop. An uncut gem, if you will. An, un an uncut gem, that's correct, yeah. <laughs> A titular uncut gem. But then it gets to, cuts to the shop. I still think that's part of the opening scene. I still feel it's part of it. it for me, I don't think that it's you cut on the rock and go back in again. But up for debate. Yeah, the the idea of like prologues is is so fascinating because there's certainly definitely films that that feel like they have them and almost feel like that part is distinct. It's it's almost not the opening scene, even though it's the first mm. thing that you see in the film. Um, I I almost picked Romeo and Juliet, oh, and I was thinking the about one. the moment where the uh, yeah the Lerman one, and I was thinking about the moment where the you have the Montague and the Capulet boys. Uh, having their confrontation at the at the gas station. Yes, and then Johnny Legs comes out and is is uh, um, King Cats, uh, Prince Cats, the, the Prince Cats. Yeah, uh, and is is amazing. And then I I actually rewatched that film uh, about a week ago, and I was like, oh yeah, that's not the opening at all because you have this whole the the literally the prologue of the play where you have the setting introduced. And it goes through it a couple of different times, you mm -hmm, know, with yeah. these different readings, like one that's just kind of this straight newscaster reading and then one that's even more stylized, essentially saying like, hey, this is this is Shakespeare for the MTV generation. <laughs> da, 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 da. And it cuts the whole thing. Yeah. And you cut to like helicopters in the sky, people in cars. It's like, what the fuck is going on? Train spotting yeah. does a similar thing where you're like, mm. there's a lot to juggle here. Has the film started yet? I feel like <laughs> I feel like we're watching a preview during this movie i'm I'm very at least with musicals you get like a clear cut of like the song is over now 
we're, we're good to start now. Sound and music starts. She sings about the fucking hills. Then she stops. Great, we're done. <laughs> La La Land. They're all stuck in traffic. Now they're not. Good, we're done. Moving on. It's, it's clean because, again, you've got those musical beats. You have the idea of that feeling. We're now moving on to the next part of the story. There are also other things, obviously, we haven't discussed, like flashbacks, bookends, all this sort of stuff. Like, you know, like, like Fight Club starts and you come back, you pick up it back. It's like, I think even the line is like, where did we leave off? Oh, yeah. I think it was about here. Ah, yeah. oh. uh, flashback humor. There it is, exactly. Mm. Uh, Sunset Boulevard starts at the end of the story with the body floating in the pool. Um, there's tons. And then again, it's, it's always fascinating to me how you have some that are so fast and erratic, like Romeo and Juliet, light train spotting, they just pack in so much stuff. And some that are so fucking slow in a weird way. Like the Flowers of, Sh- Flowers of Shanghai is amazing for that shit. It's one shot, like eight minutes long. Um, Once Upon a Time in the West is painfully slow, waiting for Charles Bronson at a station um, for literally the whole, you know, just for, it's like we're shy, one horse. Like, no, you brought two too many. Bang, 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 bang. Brilliant. <laughs> Fucking love it. But um, then you get other films where the, be- the you know, the, the uh, like the Dark Knight, for fuck's sake. The Dark Knight's mm, one is, again, yes. surprisingly, uh, it's good because it's, it's, it's a heist, it's tense, but it's actually quite slow in what it's doing. It's like, that's the Batman. Well, where, where's Batman? Why, <laughs> yeah, why am I not seeing a boy rising no in a, in the in a, scene. Yeah, in exactly. a circle of bats? <laughs> That's how you open a Batman movie, right? <laughs> Thanks, Snyder. I, uh, yeah, I, I again almost picked the Dark Knight, and I think it's an interesting one because it's when it's when Nolan first starts using IMAX, mm. which kind of forces him to make his shots a bit more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's also I think I don't know if it's an editing thing, mm-hmm. but latter the, the 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 more and more nolan goes on he he loves to cut his films to the bone and like anything that's vaguely expositional kind of even though he loves exposition but he cuts it so quick that you've really got to be paying attention for everything and i feel like that opening heist is kind of the first time that starts rearing its head um, mm. like the bits where like the, the, the guy gets electrocuted, like going into the vault and stuff like that. And like, if you're not paying attention during that opening scene, it's very easy to miss some of those moments. Yes. Yeah, like, they don't. Were there more of these guys? Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't linger on anything at all. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic yeah. scene and like, I mean, perfect introduction to, to yeah. Heath Ledger's Joker. But N- Nolan's quite yeah, unapologetic I, with that stuff. I should meant like Dunkirk and, and Inception, same sort of thing where it's like, you're running from, from the Nazis. Bang, bang. You never see them, but they're coming. <laughs> Bullets whipping past. Uh, Inception. He's on a beach talking to an old man. Where's this going? And then it cuts back to an earlier conversation, which is a, all this. It's like, if you're not paying attention, you're going to be lost very quickly. And something I know we've talked about before a couple of times. I can't remember which episode or it was on a live stream or whatever we're talking about. It's becoming more and more common for the release of Here's the opening seven to ten minutes of the movie. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. You get this on YouTube. And the first example I remember of that, and we've talked about it before, we've in fact fixed it on the show. I <laughs> have fixed this movie before, is Dark Knight Rises. Oh, fuck I remember, me. I remember that being a thing where everybody's like, oh my god, you can see the opening scene of the new Batman <laughs> movie. I can't remember which film it was paired with. Can't, can't hear it very well, but you can see it. <laughs> Why'd you shoot him? 
and then they completely overcorrected and fucking ADR and Tom Hardy's voice to <laughs> fucking made him sound terrible and made me hate that movie. Yeah, but he's a but, big guy for you. Yeah, yeah. He's a big guy for you. That <laughs> fucking dialogue. So weird. But that opening scene, the, the plane Bane release thing, like, is such a visually striking thing. And it's so Nolan. He's so yeah, yeah. clearly we actually flew an actual plane and dangled another plane from a real plane and blew up a plane. Like, wait, any green green screen is like, no, no, no. They're really in a plane yeah. in real life and people are hanging out of it and explosions are actually happening and all this kind of stuff. And it sets not necessarily the tone, but like the approach. If you've never seen a Batman Nolan movie before, this is grounded real shit and, and you, you're you're going to get you know stuck into some... It's not big cartoony mm. bat nipples everywhere and people wearing blue face paint and all this kind of stuff. It's yeah. just a really bad ADR'd guy in a mask instead mm. who, for some reason, in the final version, has a mask and a hood on and still sounds <laughs> crystal clear for some reason. <laughs> like That's the right moment when, you. when he should sound fucking muffled. And yeah. it sounds like he's right up in your ears doing ASMR. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, this is so weird. But yeah, that that See, is one of the opening scenes that always makes me think of like, and yeah, they just released the opening scene. How weird. And that's become such a trend now. You'll get it released mm. to fucking IGN or Empire or whoever it is, and they'll have it on their YouTube channel. Like, here's the opening seven to ten minutes, whatever the opening scene is. I'm like, cool. I mean, I'll just, if I'm going to go see this movie, I'll go see this movie. Like, Yeah, I don't need the teaser. I'm good. I've seen the trailer. I've seen the teaser for the teaser. I've seen the teaser. I've seen the trailer. I've seen the second trailer and the third trailer. I don't also need the opening 10 minutes. Yeah. Like, fuck's sake. <laughs> see, see, one where I'm glad they did that uh, is uh, Baby Driver. Because mm. the opening scene is the only part of that film I that's like. The best, that's <laughs> the best by the far film. the best bit of that film, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yep. I yep. agree. And the whole thing's on YouTube. <laughs> Put up there by the studio. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's interesting because I, I I mean, I mean, very recently Black Widow's opening I think is fantastic. The opening of that movie is really good because it doesn't it stands separate from the movie itself and feels really tense. But mm. that's also because uh, Marvel different. We'll get onto that later. Don't worry. We are going to talk about MCU stuff once we're back in the room together. When when we'll pandemic soon. permits, we'll be soon. We'll be soon. 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 We're, ne- we're nearly all vaccinated. We'll be there soon. Mm. Just with Nolan for a second, he's one of those great examples of like, oh, he does, he does this. It's like, yeah, he's doing the Bond thing. He still wants to do a Bond film other than Interstellar. So you get the cold open. So with Inception, for example, as I said earlier, you've got him on the beach with Saito. And it's like, oh, yes, this is how it is. And then, okay, I'm uh, uh, old men waiting for movies. And then it cuts to them in a younger time. That's all still the cold open. That's all still the opening scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's only when they get pulled out and after the helicopter scene that explains what Inception is, and then they go to France. That shit is where it starts to get less out of the opening scene. And that's like, well, no, 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 it must be because they get... And it's like, no, because as Tim said earlier, with it, you're in multiple realities, but you're still in the same beat. The action beat is still there. It's when they get off the train and he checks his like, oh, check my, 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 um, my wrist has been tampered with. Things like that, for example, that's where you know it stops because you have that breather. You have the, the indicator through editing and direction that the movie is, mo- is, is pivoting. Yep. You're changing, like, like a train comes up hurtling towards a signal. The signal stops, you go to a different track. You can feel the as you go over it, but you don't realize you've changed direction. That's, yeah. to me, where the opening scene ends. Hmm. Agreed. Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets 
to the peaks. DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote bag. I know you guys have done much traveling in your time. I know, Matthew, you've, you've been to Japan and you're planning I've been all to over go, the place. Going back to Japan, you're planning yeah. to go to Korea, you've been to the Americas. Tim, you've been to the Americas. I've not been to America, but I have been to Japan a couple of times in the last few years, pre pandemic, naturally. And being able to fit things on Shinkansens and trains and, and through luggage storage and like tiny little storage areas in Japanese hotels <laughs> was a real struggle sometimes because I was there for like 10 days and had no access to washing or anything. So having the ability to kind of attach stuff to your bag and keep it all like in one place would have been super useful. Yeah, Jack, I've, I've, I've been on five of the seven continents and oh. a bag that is really, really well designed is an absolute necessity. It's a Research that stuff before you go anywhere. Get it done here <laughs> now and go, oh, fantastic. This is my, this is my go bag. This is the one. I made the mistake before of doing stuff where it's like, oh, I'll just wing it. I'll just take my normal rucksack, you know. The normal, I took my, I've got a work bag. It fits a laptop and stuff. It'll be fine. And then something will go wrong and it's ever so slightly too big or too small to travel with or won't fit in this compartment or whatever. So if you are going to go traveling, now things are starting to open back up again and fingers crossed by the end of this year, sometime next year, <laughs> we'll be able to start leaving the country and traveling around the world once again. Get a DB backpack, get a DB bag. It's going to save your life while you're traveling. And we can offer you an exclusive discount of 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on. Time to get going. So let's dive into some more specific examples of opening scenes, shall we? Some good, some weird, maybe some bad. Who knows? Uh, Tim, I'm going to come to you first. Just a throw things around and, and shake up the formula. Can you give us an example of an interesting, unique, or particularly good opening scene of your choice? My two choices. I have one that is really pushing the definition of an opening scene. <laughs> and then I have we, one We've that, talked about it earlier. Yeah, then I have one that is very straightforward. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're also uh, linked. So... Um, Ooh. Uh, I love it when you do your little thematic theme. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'll start with a straightforward one first. Uh, and my choice for that is Mission Impossible 3. Ooh, nice. Uh, by J.J. Abrams. <laughs> um, and I think we talked earlier about the how action films, spy films in particular, uh, are often defined by their opening scenes setting the tone, setting the stakes. Mission Impossible is kind of the closest we've got to an American version of James Bond at this point. There were arguments at certain yeah. times that Bourne was the equivalent. I think the Mission Impossible films, especially now, they, they kind of went through a lull, but I think mm. now we've got to a point where, no, these, these, these are really impre impressive films with action scenes that are yeah basically unrivaled elsewhere yeah. in cinema gadgets rather than tech as well separates mission impossible from born because it's the whole mm. like tech in the in born identity is like cameras and phones and shit mm. it, it, in mission impossible it's these perfectly crafted masks yes. and you know 
a, a giant projector you push down a hallway to say, oh, look, here's what's behind me, kind of which is basically an invisible car, but we won't go into that. Yeah, I don't think the... Uh, Mission Impossible doesn't always have the best opening scenes, but it often does, it often does interesting stuff, and I think... Mm the best and i i some people don't care for mission impossible 3 hello i really like it you you want matthew it's fine fu- it's literally you fine what mate <laughs> it's better, better than two though isn't it i mean i like two in its own fuck, way fucking hell man <laughs> it is better than two but it's <sighs> not like much better matt, it's just matt just different... loves do gray scott and his flowing irish I like doves <laughs> um doves and slow-mo what yeah can i say I mean, yeah, if you want that, you get John Woo, and it makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mission Impossible 3, it, it was kind of faced with an uphill struggle after 2 was so very 2000s Woo, uh, possibly the most 2000s Woo. It also, um, let's face it, killed the franchise. Yes, yeah. It, it, it literally was like, no one wants to see any more of these, and Abrams actually, to be fair to him, did a fucking Force Awakens and other bits and pieces, and you're like, no, 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 I can, I can do something with this. And it's like, oh yeah, these can be fun. Mm. So yeah, yeah, it kind of set the template for what Mission Impossible would turn into. Yes. It was something that then, then uh, Ghost Protocol would like evolve on and improve, and then it beca- by by the time you got to Rogue Nation, it the, the formula was pretty much set. It still evolved with each different filmmaker approaching it, and and so forth and so on. But Mission Impossible One and Two stand apart from the series at this point as unique sure. kind of entries. Uh, the opening of Mission Impossible Three, for people who can't remember, is basically a two-person scene. Th- three, if you want to be picky. Three, if you want to be picky. Uh, but but <laughs> there are four bodies in the room, but that's not the point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is basically a, t- a two-hander between Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt um, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, as Owen Davian, who is the villain of the film. I would argue the best villain that the Mission Impossible series has had. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I think... Uh, Owen Seymour Hoffman is the fucking best. Yeah. In case you don't know, listeners. <laughs> I think Sean, Sean Harris's uh, character, whose name I can't remember, he's, he's getting up there. He's solid. Now. He's fine, yeah. 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 Um, but it, I think it's a, a series that has struggled with with getting good villains. But Philip Seymour Hoffman delivers in this film. He is so intense and sort of relaxed in his evilness. And uh, the scene is actually a flash forward from later in the film. And it is that Tom Cruise... I keep wanting to just say Tom Cruise. Ethan Hunt. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not, it's not uh, yeah. far off. It's it, potato, potato. Uh, he has had an explosive charge put in his brain. Um, and As you do, as Tom as, Cruise. As you do. Part of Scientology, I think. Yeah. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. In my allegedly, allegedly. Trouble, allegedly. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman has, who we learn in the next kind of, after the opening title sequence, we learn is now Ethan Hunt's fiancé slash wife at this point, has her hostage and is threatening her with a gun. And it's basically him saying, I'm counting down. I want you to tell me this piece of information, and if you don't tell me, I'm going to shoot shooter. The 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 countdown is so fucking good. Yes, like when when Ethan Hunt is trying to convince him not to, and he's like seven. Yeah, seven. Just the the gun at her head is like, oh my god, he's so terrifying. Philip Seymour Hoffman is incredible. I mean, we know nothing about the film at this point. We don't know who this character is, other than yep. Tom Cruise is very clearly like in, 
beaten to he, shit. He cares, <laughs> he cares about her safety. You know, he's, he's a hero, so he doesn't want to see anyone shot in the head. But this is clearly, and, and Mission Impossible 3 is kind of the one where they try and give Ethan Hunt emotions. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the grand scheme of the franchise. I think it mm. works for this film uh, to, to kind of ground him a little bit in a kind of an emotional reality. Um, we, do, we get very little information. We get Philip Seymour Hoffman saying something about a rabbit's foot. Where's the rabbit's foot? Tom Cruise is going, oh, it's, you know, I, I thought I gave it to you. Oh, it's in Paris. Um, oh, no, no, no. Like, tell me what you need. I'll get it for you. It's so fascinating watching. And I think it's, it's Tom Cruise giving a really good performance here. And you see him basically kind of like cycling through these different strategies yes. to try and to try and get Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to relent as he does this kind of countdown that is just kind of just ticking away and, and, and he refuses to stop, even though Tom Cruise from the very start is giving him the correct information. Um, and it's fascinating to see him alternate between like intimidation and lies and basically you know breaks down to the, the final point where he's just he's just begging he's just saying like mm -hmm. yeah. and it's and it's just him staring into the camera going no no and then philip seymour hoffman shoots her in the head and that's the end of the scene <laughs> it's three and a half minutes long it's quite short for an opening scene in terms of like what we described mm. and it's it goes dun 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 and you see like the initial flash of the film's like hang on what the fuck did i just see is a woman dead? Yeah. It's, it's not like a whole, oh, the mission was a success. Oh, the mission didn't, it was a yeah. scrub. Oh, no. It's like, yeah. What, it, 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 not it, enough. It, it is a million miles from Ethan Hunt climbing up a, a mountain in Utah and then getting his, <laughs> getting his wraparound shades shot at him using a rocket launcher yeah. so that he can throw them towards the screen as they explode. It is, it is such a statement of intent for the film. Mm. And... I think that a really good, and if you're dealing with a scene that is just kind of a scene, rather than something that is more experimental in the kind of montage family, the best opening scenes feel like a short film in and of themselves. Mm. Um, I think, you know, we, when we're talking about the Tarantino stuff, I think a lot of his opening scenes fall into that category where it's like, this, mm -hmm. could, this could be a short film in and of itself. You could release it as in people go, wow, that was tense. Yeah. And I think this, this, this falls into that category because it's, although we don't get the information, you know, and then in fact, in the film, you never find out what the rabbit's foot is because it's just a MacGuffin. All you need to know is that Philip Seymour Hoffman wants it and it's dangerous, probably. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's such a, you, you have two actors who are really at the top of their game here. It is, it's, Tom Cruise not just coasting by on his kind of like, yeah, I'm Tom Cruise charisma. Yeah. Watch um, me run. Yay. Yeah. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is almost always stellar in everything that he does, really going to town and giving you a villain that you, you just hate. And when, spoilers, you see him get hit by a truck at the end of the film, you're so glad he's dead. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, well, it sets up because you see the hero, as you said, Tim, Tom Cruise acting and showing a range. Mm. He's like, he does the whole like, oh, did I, uh, oh, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to charm you. It's over here. Mm. And Felicity Moffat's like, no, you're lying. It's not, it's not there. No, no it's, it's not, not in Paris. It's, it's not in Paris. 
and it's like, oh, okay, oh, okay. And then he, he fires the shot. He's like, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill you. All right. Yeah. And it's like, I don't care. Where I could do this all night. Come on, Ethan, where is it? And it keeps going. And there's like, as you say, it's like, please, 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 don't, don't do this. Don't just listen, just listen, mm. just, just, just listen to me. And then if you've ever been in that kind of situation where you're trying to stop something that's inevitable, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, even though he's shouting and then he's quiet, he feels, and I hate I'm quoting sort of Inception, uh, uh, I hate that I'm quoting um, Endgame in a way, he does feel inevitable. He feels like this thing of like, and when so as the threat is already just established, the word inevitable isn't necessarily quoting Endgame. <laughs> no, but I, I am inevitable is quite. A, a you didn't say I am inevitable. You <laughs> said the thing is quite inevitable, which is definitely not a Fine. quote from Endgame. <laughs> but the, the point is that his his presence and his character and things sets up very quickly that no matter what our hero does, if he uses his cunning, his brawn, his rage and, and emotion, or his you know emotional earnestness, none of it's going to work. Mm. and yeah, you're like I've, oh you've just touched upon it Matt it's the dynamics of the scene where as I mentioned earlier he's doing like seven seven just making sure like focus on me the countdown is still happening motherfucker we're still having yeah. this conversation you're trying to avoid it you're trying to block it out like you said Ethan Hunt Tom Cruise basically just like monologues to the camera at one point but obviously on the other side of that is Davian is the villain mm. is Philip Seymour Hoffman lurking there and he literally has to like draw his attention back to him and then he's quietly talking about how he's gonna kill her and i'm gonna kill you too and he just does this whole like he's terrifying when he's quiet then he's really terrifying when he's loud then he's even more <laughs> terrifying when he's quiet again and the balancing act of the two of them playing off each other is just mm. spectacular and i hate to say it it's the scene I always remember from that movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's the thing where like, I think of Mission Impossible 3. I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman doing the countdown and Ethan Hunt strapped to a chair and that kind of thing. It's like, what else happens in Mission Impossible 3? A ah, bunch of like spy shit and other stuff <laughs> and you know, whatever. But Philip Seymour Hoffman's great, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. And it does a brilliant job of, like we said earlier, it sets up the tone, it sets up the villain particularly, and it does even set up Ethan Hunt and his resourcefulness and him trying to do different tactics and do different techniques and all this kind of stuff. And Davian's just got him matched. He is just, just this wall, you know, not, not un an unflinching force against his, uh, all of his techniques and his tactics. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah. It's even though Felix Leon Hoffman is like modulating his tone, like you say, sometimes he's like really screaming at him, sometimes he's very soft, he's always in control. There it is. And mm. even even though Tom Cruise is kind of trying all these different things, you see you see he he has his training, he knows all these different methods to try and get to someone. He's never in control in that situation. And it's fascinating to watch because we're so used to Tom Cruise just being this kind of unstoppable Ubermensch, you know, especially in these films, that to have him realize and towards the end of the the countdown kind of does it starts to sink in of like there's nothing I can do to stop this happening. And like you said, him, he gives him the real information, as far as we know. Like, yeah, he he does actually, yeah, tell him. But it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, that's not that's not why we're here. That's not what this scene is doing. That's not what this villain is about. Mm. It's like, oh god, is there anything? Is there anything scarier than like giving somebody what they want and then just being like, I still don't care and I'm still going to kill you? It's like, oh well, this is it. This is the end. Mm. Game over, man. Like. <laughs> so that that is my pick because excellent choice. Tim. I think I think a, a fantastic, like you say, 
it sets up the tone and it sets up a villain who is, like I say, the the franchise has yet to beat in terms of just the menace that he brings to the screen. Matt, let's hop around to you. So you talked a minute ago about uh, films that act as if they're a short movie in and of themselves. This is quite literally a short film <laughs> at the start of the regular movie, so much so that it is in a different time zone, it's different people that you never see again, and it is an allegory that explains where the film is going to go, basically. We have discussed in the past on a live stream, we talked about the Coen brothers, their movie is Serious Man. It is one of my all-time favourite Coen brothers films. It is probably my favourite Coen brothers movie, A Serious Man. It is also one of the most underrated and underviewed of the Coen Brothers movies for multiple reasons. But to give you a very brief overview, it's set in the late 60s and as far as this guy called Larry, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, and his, his life just fucking falls apart. He's a sort of Midwest American Jewish guy and he, you know, is that he's, he's a professor looking for tenure and his kid's a bit of a prick and his <laughs> wife is leaving him for this other guy who wants to be his friend for some reason. He wants to consult a rabbi about things. He's getting potential bribe money from one student who's got a bad grade. There's so much shit going on. He kind of wants to have sex with his neighbor, but doesn't know about it. It's all these sort of general day-to-day mundane conundrums. Except the overriding theory of all of it is about being a good man. About being a serious man. I'm just, a, I'm just, I'm just trying to live a good life. And yet... The world keeps shitting on me, basically. <laughs> and it's brilliant, and the way it's executed is amazing. Um, Carter Burwell's score is magnificent. The acting is absolutely phenomenal. The tra- it's one of the best film trailers I've ever seen. But the opening opening scene is a kind of prologue. And it, 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 we can get into this weird definition of what is a prologue, is it a talent separate thing, but prologue is the best way to define it, I guess. It is set in 19th century arguably Poland, sort of Eastern Europe. It doesn't really, really defined exactly, I don't think. And it is an, um, it's a, uh, it's a folktale. It's an anecdotal sort of um, uh, analogous opening. And the thing talks about a dibuk. If you don't know what dibuk is, I'll tell you. So, so there there are three people in the scene. And again, like much like with the Mission Possible 3 thing, it's a very small contained scene. Um, there's Velville, Dora, and um, Title Goshkova. And it's like, okay, fine. And these actors are played by Adam Lewis Rickman and uh, Jelena Schmelson and uh, Vivish Finkel, I want to say. And that's like, oh, cool. I don't know any of these motherfuckers at all. It's like, no, you don't. The <laughs> film opens. It's, very, it's, it's in 4-3, so the film is not in 4-3, but this part is. It's shot in a to really... Pre- to preserve the visual integrity <laughs> of the director mm-hmm. and whatever. Yeah, but with the Coens, I... But the Coens, I believe that, and it's Roger Deakins. It makes, it, this makes sense, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is how you do it, and it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it acts as a, as as a as an opening advisory cautionary tale, um, and it tells you about this man coming home, and he's really you know there's there is a clear parallel between the two of them. Velville is big and bright and bold and happy, and oh my wife, I went to town, and she's literally just smashing away at some stuff in in a pot, and going, did you get a good deal on that? Oh yeah, it's this much. Oh, she could have got better than that. My cart fell over, and it was always oh, a terrible time. I was at least warmed up by the fire, and she's like, "I don't, I don't want to hear this." She's really not like sick of his shit, as it were. It's the happy go lucky and the, he, and the grumpy. He describes her as, like, "Oh yeah, a real ray of sunshine." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and and basically at this point, he says, "But you never guess who I bumped into." Title Goshkova, and it's like, 
And she stops. Says, no. No, he's dead. You... He died years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, about? I think it's literally been like, like months ago. So it's, but it's the small village mindset of, no, you're mistaken. I met him. I saw him a little while ago. He's coming over here. I invented him over. Why did you invite a dead man to our house? It's like, he's not dead. He helped me with the car. Are you fucking mental? Don't be rude. He's coming. It's like, nope, you will not bring this man in my house. I will, I will fucking stab him. I'm not having a dibbuk or like a ghost or this, this demon in my house. And then there's a knock at the door. And it's tense. Door creaks open. Velva's like, hello? And it's Goshkova. And he's just stood there. And he's, a, you know, got this giant white beard. He's just staring straight ahead. He's just an old man. But the way that Deacons frames it, the way we've already established this sort of fear of what's happening, it just hangs. And he's like, oh, hi. Uh, come, come on in. This is all I should point out in, uh, in, in, in his sort of Polish Yiddish. And it's like, come, come in. He's like, oh, thank you very much. And he comes inside and says, oh, you must be Dora. You look great. And he says, yeah, no. Okay. And she's, she has no shit immediately. She's trucking no shit. And he's like, you don't, you don't offer me like a drink or something? He's like, oh, he's like, oh yeah. Do you want something to eat? No, I'm not hungry. He says, no, doesn't eat. Ibex don't eat either. It's like, uh. And then as a series of sort of tests, and she openly says, you're a Dibbuk. And he says, wow, fucking hospitality. I, I help your husband. I come in. I, I do a, a mitzvah. I do a nice thing. And you call me a Dibbuk? That's rude. Just, yeah. And, and, and you know, the Vevel's trying to say, oh, okay, let's everyone just settle down. At which point, he says, well, yeah, okay. Uh, may maybe I will have some of your stuff, whatever. And she sticks an ice pick in his chest. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh shit, what have you done? And he just looks down, then looks back up and goes, ha, 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 what a woman. And she says, see, Dibbuk. And it's like, you start thinking, oh fuck, this thing is like some sort of demon. And then as it's like hinted at this stuff, he goes, oh, uh, and then he starts bleeding as if it's like, oh, now I better stop. Uh, uh, now blood's coming through. But it's like, hang on, is that because it was just a, a deep wound that's only bleeding through now because it's cold? Or is it because he's prompted like, you know, a, a, a almost a camouflage style imitating a human sort of thing? What's going on here? And he says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not that hungry. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. It's okay. And he just walks out into the night. And Velva says, we're going to, we're going to be strung up in the morning. We, you have damned us. She says, no, husband, I have saved us. Everything will be all right in the morning. And she closes the door. It is in of itself a fantastic little, you know, uh, Grimm's fairy tale style story, a cautionary tale. And it sets up the entire tone of what is to come because by the end of the movie, it is the exact same thing of like, you can see things from two or three different perspectives. You can see these things going different ways. They could mean different stuff. You've got religion, you've got superstitions. If you choose to see things a certain way, you'll see what you want to see. And it's acted magnificently. It's deacon, so of course it looks stunning and sort of almost this hazy, snowy, almost as if the camera's got a bit of a sort of warm, soft glow to the whole thing because it's come in from the cold, as it were. And the acting is magnificent. And then it cuts to the 60s. And you're like, what the shit did I just see? <laughs> but that tone, that sort of like superstition, versus pragmatism and science and logic and reason versus mysticism and religious oversight and no, 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 no. And that confidence either way. And almost importantly, making a decision to do something and it being irrevocable. The idea that you've, you have set us on this course now, there is no going back. But you had a moment where it could have been either way. You chose this path. And that's what the whole film was about. And it's, it's fucking glorious. But that opening scene, as I say, really stuck with me. 
as as a solo piece. You can just literally search for that scene on its own. So, Tim, you haven't seen a serious man, but you have seen this scene. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, I, I will. Um, I'm going to put together a, a little playlist that we'll link in the um, mm. in the show notes of all the opening scenes that we discuss. Good man. And yeah, I I, I made the time to to go back and rewatch uh, everything that we were going to discuss. Uh, Me too. Last night, and um, yeah, it's it's a fantastic. It felt it felt like the Coens almost doing like folk horror. Yes. Yes. <laughs> to a certain, but but obviously with their own Cohen twist on it of kind of humor and and stuff like that and it, it um <laughs> i said to matt uh, before the episode like you know it's the sign of a good movie almost that i i read some of the youtube comments and they had some really interesting points about how it connects to like the philosophy <laughs> of the film and stuff normally youtube comments are not where you go for insight um <laughs> but uh you know when unless, if you, unless you want to fight with neo-nazis about shrek 2 yes yeah fucking hell yes but then uh, if you're going to the comment section of a serious man you probably are already yeah, <laughs> uh, have Hopefully the right. Don't find too many neo Nazis there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one about would, one would hope. Yeah, I mean, one could assume it's 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 literally about Jewish people. You're like, oh god, who's going to say something offensive in the comments? And like, no, it's probably okay. Hopefully, but then it's YouTube. Give it five minutes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought this was a fantastic, so atmospheric. It, like you say, Deakin's doing an amazing job with the lighting, and it feels so claustrophobic. You're just like, oh, it's these three people in this tiny hut and some like one person is about to fuck up dramatically and I'm <laughs> and, not sure which one it is. And much like the movie, the way it's been filmed in that really awesome storytelling way, you could argue with each other until you're red in the face, like a religious sort of discussion or debate or at least a philosophical debate. You can argue until you're red in the face that one of them is correct, but the evidence in terms of what is shown in the film We'll back both of them up. And it's like, damn, that's some good filmmaking. I'm glad you mentioned the claustrophobia, Tim, because I think, weirdly enough, there's a similarity there with the Mission Impossible scene because it's so yes, small. Yes, yes. It's three people. And another similarity to what we mentioned earlier and was almost a pick, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The, te- the, the tension and the, why are you here? What is, what is the problem? Like, is, is, this, is this what I think it is? I don't. Where is this Just going? Just bad what vibes, non-stop bad vibes, bad vibes. And tension, man. Yeah, exactly. What's going on? And I think both of those scenes really exemplify that. And then the brilliant performances compared to Mission Impossible Three, with such a close space. Like Mission Impossible Three, you barely see the rest of the room. It's so close mm. on those two. Yeah. And yeah. then compare that to the opening of A Serious Man. This is a tiny, tiny little like kitchen, like living room kitchen area like all in one because <laughs> the whole building is so small and it's like the front door is there your wife is making like dinner right in front of the front door because there is so little space and it feels like it's such a small old-fashioned like you said it, it's a flashback into the past kind of thing it makes it feel older and smaller and claustrophobic that just helps to build that tension add on top of that you have the kind of folklore mythology side of things where it's like is this in the past and if you're going into this you know not knowing anything you don't know what this film is about like wait is he a demon is this a thing like is is he actually dying oh and then he walks off and like don't know okay cool yeah we'll we'll we, we do not know but it, it sets the tone it sets 
I mean, it opens in fucking Hebrew, which which also <laughs> sets a tone because the film is so, you know, it's so written de- Jewish de- culture, definiti- yeah. definitively Jewish. Yeah, exactly. So obviously and openly, proudly Jewish. That opening in a a full Hebrew scene is such a bold fucking move. But if the Coen Brothers can't do it, who can? Kind of thing. <laughs> True. <laughs> if they can't get away with that, then you know. But yeah, excellent choice, Matt. I think uh, you're totally right about it being one of their like hidden gems in their definitely, um, filmography as well. So, Jack, what have you got for us? What are you What are you starting with? You know, we, we talked about like small scenes and three people and all this kind of stuff. How about like twenty thousand? <laughs> <laughs> all the people, <laughs> all the people, exactly. We've got all one the... one one woman getting shot, one old man getting stabbed. What do you got for us, Jack? Everything, <laughs> everything. Uh, one dark lord getting his finger cut off. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the opening of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, which, for those of you who don't know, opens with the whole Galadriel talking about the ring and the journey of the ring and how Isildur gets it and Elrond doing the whole cast it into the fire and the big battle and how Isildur cuts the ring off the hand of the Dark Lord and defeat Sauron hundreds of years ago and all this crazy shit and then eventually lands in a hobbit's pocket and you're like oh fucking hell <laughs> and that's another prime it, example of that, that breathing I talked about in the editing because you're like mm-hmm. shit there's so much I'm taking all this world building on board and there's like and then it takes us to a hobbit now let me tell you about a hobbit hole and you're like ah, at yeah. that moment yeah it's it, uh, weirdly enough there's going to be a lot of weird similarities here it's the dynamics again. It, in this, in this case, it's not Seymour Hoffman shouting, and it's not him being super quiet and intimidating. It's going from literal life and death, epic fantasy battles to here's a bloke in his house in the middle of nowhere in the countryside, and there's such a shift in tone. But it's a gradual, a, a really nicely paced opening moment where you learn so much about Tolkien's world from that opening scene. Some would argue probably too much because welcome <laughs> to J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> if, if you don't know what the fuck is going on, it's like, and his son is Sildor, the third of the blah, 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 and the blah, blah, blah. And his son, Baldor of Isildur, come Fildor. And you're like, oh, God, okay. <laughs> but I think it, it just skims along that line because I think, as we learned from the Hobbit films, and if any of you have ever read anything like, I don't know, The Silmarillion, it can get real dense and real dry and real awful sometimes and, and when you get really digging deep into that lore. But I think that opening scene in the first Lord of the Rings films, and we all know how I feel about Lord of the Rings films, I think they're three of the best films ever made and I adore that trilogy. But that opening scene in particular does such an amazing job of setting up the next fucking 10 hours of movies basically <laughs> because you're setting up and in not only the rest of this film but an entire trilogy that is all centered and it feels like oh it's a big battle yeah it's about defeating the dark lord and stuff it's like is it though or is it the journey about the hobbits and this little piece of metal like it, it's all of it it, it is a brilliant way of like because when you think of lord of the rings you think helm's deep you think all this stuff and then you also think of the journey that Frodo and Sam go on together and the personal stories and how Merry and Pippin grow and learn to, you know, they have that final, like, fuck yeah, we're going to fight alongside you, Aragorn moment, and all this kind of stuff. And all of that is set up. You learn about hobbits. You learn about the Dark Lord. You learn about 
men and elves and dwarves and all this crazy shit. But it doesn't stay too, it doesn't overstay its welcome. And I think it really could easily do that where it would be, you know, an extra, like we talked about, Inglorious Bastards, if it's another 10 minutes long, you'd be like, okay, we get it. Yeah, there's, there's nine rings of the, yeah, six kings of the blah, 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 whatever. Mm. And it just goes through and gives you enough. And they don't, like I said, a lot of the Tolkien stuff, you would, you would name every king and his son and his <laughs> son after him and all that kind of stuff. But it just says, and the six dwarves and the nine men. And you're like, okay, cool. This is mysterious. This is interesting. Mm. And even little things like that, the nine men, and you're like, well, what does that mean? They're the fucking ring rates <laughs> that you meet later on. And it's all in one big circle, like the ring. And it's a very clever, like, sowing the seeds and little things that you learn later on through the characters and through the story. And I just think it does a, a brilliant job of setting everything up for one of the most epic journeys in cinema. Yeah, I, I can remember going to see this and and 15-year-old Tim, who had struggled through the Lord of the Rings books mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and appreciated them, but not necessarily enjoyed them. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Sat down to watch this and was excited about it, but 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 was also like, mm, I hope there's not much singing. <laughs> and it it balances that opening so well because it does indulge a little in the in the Tolkien esque of it, and you have your your Kate Blanchett voiceover, and you have your uh you know the 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 rhyme of you know the rings and 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 stuff like that and being told and. And these quite sort of presentary shots of just like, you know, here's the nine men who know only greed kind of thing and stuff like that. And um, and then and then you have fucking uh, Hugo Weaving standing in a line and the arrow being shot past him that just like whips his hair. And then the line of the elves all whipping their katana type sword upward swing thing that that I still don't understand. shit. and 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 15 year old tim who was who was still being like i'm not sure i'm not sure about this was just like holy shit this is the best thing i've ever seen (laughs) um and and it and it it perfectly balances that kind of like there will be kick-ass action in this film but also you know pace yourself um you know and that is as much as that is important no we're going to end up we're going to take you to the hobbit you know we're going to say this is the thing that is actually important. You know, this is this all impacts it, but here's the thing that you want to follow. Here's the story that you should be paying attention to. It's so so well constructed. Lord of the Rings was held up as one of these things of like, oh, you know, you can't you can't make a film of it. It's yeah, too sprawling. Yeah. It's too difficult. You'll never do it. And the the skill with which they construct that opening sequence must have reassured people who were big Tolkien fans who did come into that with her so many expectations and so much kind of riding on it for their own personal mm. enjoyment. Uh, and I'm sure that that opening sequence just kind of let them know, like, no, we, uh, A, we're not, we're not fucking around here in terms of like, oh, we're going to make Aragorn the, the ring bearer because he's the traditional hero. And like, who cares about <laughs> the source material? You know, it's like, no, we have a respect for the source material, but we also understand the needs of like, storytelling in a different format so good entirely and and the fact that it i think we forget this okay i'm just I'm gonna give you a little statistic here that might maybe shock you for those who know the scene i just described with the dibbuk in the serious man is longer than jack's lord of the rings introductory sequence 
which tells thousands of years of history, hundreds <laughs> of years of history. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, when I remember, as similar to Tim and Jack, being in the cinema in the dark, watching this movie, and just the unapologetic boldness of it. It starts in pitch black with whispering and elvish. Then the world has changed. Big long pause. I feel it in the water. Big long pause. Like, what are you doing? People are getting <laughs> restless and freaked out. I can't see anything. And just, I feel it in the earth, smell it in the air, much that was once lost for now, but none, that, that none now live to remember it, whatever it was. And then it goes to the fucking titles and say, like Lord of the Rings, and this eerie, fucking beautiful music. You're like, what the f? <laughs> yeah, which and is the which is the ring theme. Which I, right there. I think it's magnificent. The motif for the ring specifically yeah. is like yeah, it is it is genuinely um, magnificent. When you think about how unpopular fantasy was at this time period mm. as well, like that is so bold. Yeah, that's so ballsy. And and then it cuts to the whole you know the action scenes and the whole like rhyme and firing arrows and giant you know say so, ah it was all going well until it didn't. Mace gets well, that Morning Star style thing that Mace gets thrown around like holy shit and cast into the fire no and Isildur being set upon and Gollum finding the ring all this stuff and it is at no point saying now this is going to be fantasy it's got mystical elves and magic and things like that. are you going to be we're going to have to ease within some real time where it's got like a boy reading a book somewhere or it's got it's like, fuck that shit Here's an old, is is a fucking lady whispering. She's a fucking elf. And here's a here's a picture, literally almost tableau. Here's a fucking old ma- bunch of old men. Here's fucking dwarves. Here's elves. And it's like, oh shit, you are not letting up. Mm. And it's like, and they're all badass. And here's why. And here's the thing they're facing. And it's like this nine foot fucking chundering beast. And it's like this is, this is intense. Mm. This and is very not, intense. We're not gonna have someone who's making snarky asides to the camera going like, I know this is all a bit goofy, but trust me, you really want to watch out for this Sauron guy. Yeah. That ring's yeah. no good. No, it, it does it like it's fucking saving Private Ryan. And it's like, here's the opening of the D-Day landing. Oh my God. They're not going to win this. This is horrific. But it's also like, it's like chronicling all of that of like that experience. And as you guys said, then you got that breathe. Then you got that pause. You have the moment of quickly like, you know, last, it's last. And, Bilbo's putting in his pocket the ring and things. And then it cuts to his birthday. And everything slows down a bit. And you, well, to be fair, in the director's cut, fuck me, it slows down a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. The next 40 minutes, it yeah. slows down. And we have a nice hobbit party for 25 minutes for some reason. For like an hour. Um, yeah. But still glorious, still a magnificent opening. And again, it, it sets up characters you don't see for the next two hours. I mean, oh, fuck Elrond. I know him. I saw him at the start like, of the movie. Yeah, and like you said, Kane Burnchett is doing the opening. Yep. We don't know that's Galadriel until they meet Galadriel later on, and then mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I recognise that voice, and you realise she's been around for a long time, yep. and she is an incredibly powerful character, and then she gets that, and I will be a dark and beautiful queen moment. You're like, I love that scene, it's oh, so stupid. She's a big deal, and you realise, like, yeah, is she good? Is she bad? Is she this, like, neutral observer? Mm. We don't know, because she's the one that's telling this story. And it's the framework of the storyteller telling the story that sets up this whole thing. It's Bilbo writing The Hobbit, the unexpected journey and that whole thing. He is a, literally like Tolkien manifested into that world. And you have Galadriel, this ethereal, one of the most mysterious characters in the entire franchise. 
just being like, here's the story, and here's what happened so far, and it all comes down to a hobbit. And you're like, wait, what? And that's what's mm-hmm. fascinating. If you had written this as a thing, it would start with the stuff in Hobbiton, and it would have been slow burn, and people would this is dumb. Or alternatively, it would have been, my name is Gandalf, and I've seen all manner of things. That was a war years ago. But it's not. It's Galadriel as a ring bearer, and she's there. And she remembers it. But she wasn't involved in the fight. And it's like, huh, interesting. Mm, yeah. And that's, that, there are so many layers. And the more you watch that movie, the more you go back to it, the more you see in it. I think it's, a, it's a, some people would say, well, surely just the opening bit is just that bit with the fight. It's like, no, 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 no. It's all linked. It's all, in, it's all there until you get to Hobbiton. Um, and it, it stands up now. I know people say oh, the CG is aged because, of course, it has. It's 20 odd years old. No, exactly 20 years old. In it's fact. literally 20 years old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, to quote uh, Gandalf, you have no today. <laughs> well, speaking of not aging a day and looking like a wizard, <laughs> I'm coming back round to Tim, not you, Matt. Yeah, I've aged a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have. Yeah. I mean, since I've known you, you've shaved all your hair off. And that's a. Tim, Tim is the ageless one. Tim is the one that will outlive us all and look the same now as he does in 40 years' time. It's my, he's, uh... my family does age very slowly, so there mm. you go. Glacial yeah. ages. Mm. Whereas, Matt, you've got the Patrick Stewart thing. I'm like, this is you now. For the oh, next, yeah, I'm like, set. I'm set now. Years. Your, your beard will go slightly greyer. and 30s, 40s, 50s, it'll be it. this. Well, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen to me. I'm going to shrivel and die. And <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm editing, it's fine, I'll cut that out. <laughs> Everything's fine. Wait, well, speaking as, as you're editing, when you say, like, you shave all your stuff, I thought, we're not doing the manscaped, are we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Tim, your second pick, please, sir. So, yeah, like I said, my first one was very straightforward. Here is the scene. The scene has a very defined start and end, and then you know uh, the film's begun. My second pick is not like that. It's the ballsiest pick of all of us. You think it's usually it's, me with the yeah. weird shit? Tim has gone for something that is one of those really hard to quantify motherfuckers. You, yeah. you thought the Dibbuk was a, <laughs> as a wild, crazy choice? You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, so my pick, as people who may, may have picked up who, who, who know the film uh, from my opening quote, is Magnolia. Another Tom Cruise and Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, joint. Yep. Oh, yeah, I hadn't put that together. Yeah. Emotionally intense in a small scene, but with a different angle. Yes. So, for people who've not seen Magnolia, it is this very sprawling Paul Thomas Anderson film uh, about interconnected people in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles over the course of pretty much a day. There are, I can't remember the exact number, but it's about a dozen different stories happening in the film. All of them interconnect, but some of them are very tangential. You know, a lot of people are now thinking like, oh, like Crash. No, not like Crash. No. <laughs> like Crash, if Crash wasn't a big pile of shit. <laughs> uh, and the film opens with, and we, talked, we mentioned earlier that the idea of a prologue, and this really is a prologue to the film, in the same way that the Dybbuk story is. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts with these three stories of coincidences all filmed in unique ways that are meant to kind of match the setting of of the stories. The first one that's told is in London in the 1880s, I believe. And it's shot, it was actually not, it's not only that 
it's made to look like this very old style camera. It was actually shot by Paul Thomas Anderson on an incredibly, like, it was like a hand cranked, uh, of course like it was. old style camera. <laughs> Cause you know, when you've, when you're, when you've had Boogie Nights be this great success and you're doing an awful lot of cocaine, uh, <laughs> that things seem like a good idea. Then you can really crank that camera. You can, really yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah it starts with this this victorian era story of this sort of upstanding gentleman being murdered by these three vagrants who are robbing his store and it turns out that the surnames of the three murderers add up together to make the address of where the man lived and it's this coincidence and it, all of this is being narrated by uh ricky J, who is a magician who has been in a bunch of films he's great i He's great. I cast him in something. I can't remember you what it did. was. I can't remember what film yeah, that was. Yeah, God, what was that? Um, that was definitely something. I want to yeah. know there's one listener out there going, it was this. I definitely. Somebody on the mm. Discord will be like, it was this, Tim. God, <clears throat> yeah. you guys don't know anything. You can't remember your own damn pitches. Yep. Um, he also shows up in the film later on. He's he, he's not narrating this as his character. This is It's just, hey, Ricky Chase got a fucking excellent voice. Let's get him to do mm. this bit. Um, it then moves on to the story of a blackjack dealer and scuba diver who got scooped up by one of these planes that drop water on forest fires um, and died in the process, obviously. Played by Patton Oswalt, weirdly enough, very early in his career. Mm -hmm. Love me some Patton Oswalt. Yeah. Um, and then it turns out that the pilot who had scooped him up had assaulted him a couple of days earlier at the blackjack table because he was drunk and, you know, an asshole. Uh, and so the pilot, with the, the weight of this coincidence weighing on him, commits suicide. These are all supposedly true stories as well, I should say. And then the third story is about a young man who tries to commit suicide by jumping off a building and would have been saved by a safety net below, except as he's falling down the outside of the building, he gets hit by a shotgun blast from within and, and killed. Turns out the person wielding the shotgun was his mother, who was arguing with his father and kind of brandishing a gun at him, as they supposedly did all the time, and it went off accidentally. And as it, through the course of the, the police doing this very, like, trying to work out what the fuck has just happened to this kid, it basically turns out like, oh, they, the, the parents used to argue all the time and, and wheel, wheeled guns at each other in kind of threatening manner, but they never kept the guns loaded. And it is the young man who jumped off the building who loaded the shotgun, intending for his parents to kill themselves during one of their arguments because they hated each other so much and all they wanted to do was kill each other so he would, he would help them kill each other. And so it, this, this little kind of vignette, this scene, ends with the mother being arrested, having murdered her own son, with the son as an accessory to his own murder. And it ends with Ricky Jay kind of saying this, that basically these can't just be coincidences. There has to be something <laughs> more going on here. Yeah. Please, God, it can't just be, quote unquote, one of those things. Mm. <laughs> and it's that kind of last moments of narration, this build up of pressure, and then you get Amy Mann's song come in, the title card kind of blooms into existence, very literally, because there's a magnolia in it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a release of that tension that has built up through these kind of stories of quite harrowing tales of, of, of coincidence. It's such a fascinating way to start the story because they're, 
obviously all these stories that, that then get explored in the film are interconnected and it is about these strange ties that bind us together that we have no awareness of and also setting up the way that some very weird things happen in the world and we can't always explain how they happen. I fucking love that they just do a diagram of how he fell and how yes. he got shot and stuff. Yeah. It's like, it's such a, almost like a, that is the police trying to work out like, how the hell did this happen? It's like, yeah. well, when he <laughs> fell like this and his mother shot like this and there's the draw around the circle where he got shot here. Here's the, we'll point to the net here. Yeah. It's like, well, if he'd fallen like that, then that would have happened. And it's literally like this yellow marker pen, like going over yeah. the top of the screen. It's brilliant. And this is almost the, I guess the fifth, of the four things that an opening scene must do. I think this sets up the gimmick, the premise of of the film. Mm. Mm. It doesn't necessarily set up the scene or any of the characters in particular, but it does set up the coincidences and the thing that is going to tie this film together and seem these seemingly unrelated events all coming back round. Is, that, is this going to be a film about coincidences? What the fuck is this? I want to watch a film about coincidences. <laughs> and then as those things happen, you're like, oh, 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 that's very mm. clever. That's very interesting. And like you said, like him being the accessory to his own murder mm. because he loaded yeah. the shotgun. I was like, oh my God. You end up just being like, that is so unlikely. And you say that multiple times in this movie because <laughs> of how everything unfolds. Again, not to spoil it, you, you should definitely go and watch Magnolia. But it's, it's yeah, it's this brilliant kind of, set up for here's what to expect throughout the rest of the film if that makes sense without without spoiling itself in in a really mm. clever way Here, here's how everything's going to tie in here's the kind of overall premise of this movie yeah. i think it does it in a really clever and interesting way yeah i i almost wanted to include essentially the the next quote unquote scene as well mm-hmm. which is this very long montage which then introduces you to all the characters in the film and kind of establishes some of the relationships between them but also doesn't because some of them are going to come into being over the course of the film as you'd imagine um which is again just this amazing kinetic bravura filmmaking by by uh, Paul Thomas Anderson that manages to establish the these characters so quickly and so well um and kind of keeps up that tension that has built up in the, in the first, you know, we talk about the, the, the moment where you take a breath is kind of the end of the opening scene. Mm. And I feel like the end of, of this little prologue that I've talked about, you kind of take a, you take a half breath, but then it, <laughs> then it instantly is taking you back into the action. You, you, you straight away, you get the Tom Cruise giving his seduce and destroy uh, ad uh into straight into the camera and you're like wait what the fuck now oh that Where? fucking yeah. yeah uh his horrible pickup artist character yeah. um who's probably one of the best performances that tom cruise has ever given yeah um yeah, and uh and yeah and then and then you don't truly get that moment to just kind of relax and go okay i think we're into the movie now until the very end of that which is probably altogether it's probably about 12 13 minutes long um that's that sequence of kind of prologue and then opening um but you know i wanted to focus on the prologue because it's even though that is at bare minimum there's three scenes there 
you know, there's three stories. They're all very distinct. They have a different visual style to each of them. That that they are all of a piece. You know, that that it is the cumulative effect of those three stories and that great voiceover, um, building up to the moment of the title card. That that really creates the impact of it. Matt, your second pick. My second pick. Um, I I, I flirted with a few different ideas. Lots of different possible ideas really that's not like you <laughs> i know i know surely not i'm usually so definitive with my one choice now i can't pick another one guys fucking hell i'm tapped out um <laughs> D- please don't ask me to talk about more films come on guys i can only say Just so much ideas. <laughs> um i i would talk until my voice was gone and keep talking at you on post-it notes if i had to <laughs> so the, the my second choice is just an iconic one for me personally and for a lot of people, especially my age, who are into weeby stuff. And it's a really fucking tricky one because it's one of those ones where I'm about to almost contradict almost everything I've said before because back to the idea of editing. Back to the idea of a clean cut. So, for example, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the bone goes up. Ah, but is that still part of the scene? Yeah, it kind of needs it to exist. And I'm going to talk about a thing that actually could be either arguably six, seven minutes long or alternatively 20, depending on where you want to cut it. The movie in question is an animated movie, and it opens with the premiere date of said movie. It pans up, and you see a sprawling metropolis that is Tokyo. Pans up, and it says the 16th of July, 1988, Tokyo. And of course, everyone in the cinema was like, oh, cool, today. That's today, cool, great. And then there's a tiny flash, and this giant orb of light absorbs the whole thing and it's gone then it cuts to this aerial satellite footage of this fractured broken crater of a fucking place and it says 31 years after world war 3 2019 neo tokyo the future not anymore the distant future of 2019 After the uh, the Olympics, like oh, oh. yep. So like, like Blade Runner did as well. Yeah. Like, oh, it's the distant future from the eighties. It's already in the past. Oh mm-hmm. no. Yeah. It did it. It did a thirty year jump into the future, which is now our, our present. And to be fair, they're not obviously right at all. There was no World War Three as we know it. Um, Tokyo wasn't wiped out by another huge explosion, thanks to Esper psychic kinetic children. It doesn't worry about. It. <laughs> the point is, you have that. It's like, oh, was that the opening scene? No, that's not a scene. That's that's almost like incidental title cards. That's the whole Lord of the Rings thing. That's world building. Like, okay, what's the title scene then? Well, the first scene is a bar. And you go, okay. And you're just introduced to this really grimy, rundown, very 80s uh, cyberpunk style nostalgia, sort of uh, aesthetic, as it were. And this biker gang of literal kids starting shit in a bar. And the thing's on the news about how everything's gone to crap. One young member of the gang called Tetsuo is checking out the leader of the gang, Kaneda, his bike. It's, it's, a, it, it's the most beautiful fucking thing, that bike. I swear to God. <laughs> Tetsuo's, Tetsuo's I, bike is... Oh. I saw a, a, a little um, clip on Twitter the other day that was just... It was the Kaneda bike slide. Mm. And then every oh, time oh, yes. that it's been referenced in like animation oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. live action since then... Mm. Um, and it are oh, very satisfying. Yeah, that 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 bike, Canada's bike, is is genuinely 
astonishing and what they do with it in the in that movie is 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 glorious but they all come out and they walk over and like that's why you can't handle that bike get out of there you want that one you steal it yourself because i was like oh he doesn't own it but he's stolen it he rides it hard he gets that's who these kids are you get so much set up in one go about the world aesthetic what this is and they go for a joy ride and the lights stream off into the distance and it's like this is glorious and you see the, the amazing score kicks in and you oh, see yeah. buildings I was, and I was like the the fucking uh shoji yamashiro's score yeah because you have the moment where canada is like selecting music from a jukebox yes that's right yeah and yeah. then the score starts coming in as they leave and oh yeah so good the fucking and it's, drums it's great because it's, it's it's merging futurist with traditional and it's got this very old sound to it despite and very very vocal despite feeling very futuristic and they say the drums coming into i can't do it because it's silly but if you listen to it it's an amazing thing now as they just like layers of xylophones and stuff yeah so kind of percussion through and through and weird yeah yeah Yeah. percussion and vocals and then you get to the interesting point of this thing because obviously that's that's stunning as the night scenes they had to literally invent new colors to to to, to actually animate with in order to get it the way listeners listeners they invented new <laughs> colours for this movie. Yeah. Matt's not talking shit for once. Yeah. They invented new colours. This is how... I know, Matt, you talked about it not too long ago. Mm. I, took the pit, I took the piss out of you for being like, oh, you really love Akira. Oh, you only love one of the most influential and important like, animated <laughs> films of all time. I'm just going to throw it out. I think Akira is a really fantastic animated movie. Like, Wow, thanks for the hot take, Matt. Hey, but some people I, I will give you credit Thank that you. even if people know that it's an influential film and people know that Akira is a big deal and basically defined modern anime to the Western audience for the next, as we said, 30 plus years, it still blows your mind in 2021. The shit yeah. that they were able to achieve, even like we haven't even touched upon, like during the bike chase there's like the aerial shots of neo tokyo and the layers of the buildings and stuff and all the moving parts that are happening is like mm. had never been done before in an animated movie that level of detail like you said the colors they invented for some of those i think it's like the the, the way the lights move and stuff was yes like the first yes. time they'd ever done that and like the, the neon lights and mm-hmm. stuff of neo tokyo had never been done on like cell this is all hand fucking animated mm. in the late eight in 1988 like yeah. this isn't oh you just get a cgi building drop a cgi render building in there chuck all that stuff chuck it through a render i'm not talking shit about digital artists of course but back in this <laughs> time this opening scene melted people's fucking brains and if you haven't seen it it still does yeah 33 years later it's uh, mad re- re-watching it the other night i was still i was just like it is incomprehensible to me how they animated this so well mm. and are not how, how they did it and are not still making it today <laughs> because, because well, animation is hard and this <laughs> is breathtaking I, I i watched the opening scene on youtube earlier today like we said we've kind of went through them all and prepared and the top liked comment on the youtube uh video i watched says every time you blink you miss several hours of an animator's painstaking work <laughs> and that has yeah, two and a half yeah. thousand of my upvotes well like, there's a yeah, behind the scenes much. image or, or a video i should say 
of somebody and it zooms in very close. You can see the building and they're doing the highlights and the windows and this tiny, tiny skyscraper in the background of the background of the shot. Tiny back there. And they're doing it on a ruler. Just that's one frame. It's like, <laughs> oh my god! And they also do twenty-four of those per second. Yeah, and they're like it. cutting holes in the frame to shine the light through the light box to make it look like a real light. It's it's in, it's insane. So this all happens. They queue up for a joyride. The music changes slightly, and you introduce the clowns, a rival rival gang, and it's interesting because where does the scene stop? Now, arguably, there are two places. And both have complete validity. It's the back of a Dibbuk thing again about, you know, both could be argued as true. One, you could say, well, they go for the joyride. They get into a fight with the clowns. Everything goes to shit. Let's see, Takashi, the little boy, he's taken away. He goes, ah, ah. The building explodes. Glass falls everywhere. That, oh, fuck me, that looks gorgeous. That happens. And then Tetsuo runs into him and they'll get arrested. Is that the opening scene? Potentially. Or alternatively, they go for a joyride and they keep up with it and then they drive off again. It pans up and you see the city. In the same way it panned up from the original Tokyo, you see this sort of ground level, these endless sprawling buildings, and it cuts to an alleyway and this POV shot of like just almost like a drunk, hazy, uh, mm. separated shot. And that might be the end of the opening sequence. So if you like search for like the opening sequence, that's where it mostly stops people. Yeah, and that that one where it cut where yeah. it pans up to the to the city is what I thought of. That's what people and most yeah. That's why I'd I say. said the one I watched on YouTube this morning is where that cuts off. Yeah. I think if that makes sense, and that is almost seven straight minutes. Yeah, of kick ass, incredible genre defining stuff, and like you yeah. said, Matt, the fact that it opens with this like, oh, it's today. Like, wait, what? Why is it? T- what do you mean it's today? The fuck is this film about? Bang, big explosion, 30 years in the future. Now we're actually in the film and you're already seeing stuff that is iconic in the first Mm. three, four, five minutes of this film and it keeps going and the music builds and the animation is gorgeous and it just is incredible. And the fact that when you see the explosion, you don't hear anything. There's no boom! It's a... And it's just again, it's it's a it's a nation who grew up post nuclear bomb, basically. Yeah. It's the fear you're living with, and it's within living memory because it's the eighties. And then all you have is this giant taiko drum. <laughs> Title card. <laughs> it's like, what the it, everything is so serious. So when you get the other percussion that's so fast and so uh, layered, and the music in the, in its orchestral notes and the choral notes saying, and it's like, oh, let's sing about the characters. Why, why, why do I care about these two specifically? It, it's so layered. Just like the visuals, the audio is so layered. And again, it's as Tim, Tim nailed it. It's fucking breathtaking. And anyone's like, I don't really like anime. It's all, it's all silly. It's all girls and magical girls. And, <laughs> and is that an impression of my fiance? I mean, I mean, in words, <laughs> yes. Rude. In tone, no. She's still wrong, obviously. Um, it's, oh, it's all Goku going, oh, I'm Goku or whatever. There were no Goku. But the point is, it's like any medium. It's like anything has validity. But, but Akira, you put some fucking respect in that goddamn name. <laughs> it's, it's, as old, it's older than Jack. It's almost as old as Tim and myself. It, it's, it's a legacy that is enduring. In the same way that 
Blade Runner has like a powerful opening and a powerful thing because of how it's shot and it, the cityscape and things and close-ups of eyeballs and it's doing so much. Akira is doing the same thing, but on paper or celluloid effectively, drawn by human hand. That is something you will very rarely see ever again because who the fuck would fund that sort of thing? What madman would endure it? Jack, what's your final yeah. pick? Is it something to lift us up and make us feel a lot better? Yep, that's exactly what it is. There's no. Would you de- would you des- describe it as uplifting? Oh, Tim, you are a Tim. bastard. <laughs> well done, Tim. Well done. It's a lovely little story uh, about a man called Carl. And uh, yeah, that's it. Good. Sounds good. Is it is Aquatine yeah. Hunger Force? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is. Yes, it Brilliant. is. It's exactly that. But it is animated. A couple of you may have worked that already. We're talking about sad and characters named Carl. PTSD sets in for a lot of people. Yeah. You're ready to cry just from us talking about it, ladies and gentlemen. It is, I would argue, one of the best like short films I've ever seen because <laughs> I think this is the perfect example of the... It's essentially a standalone short film as an opening scene and then you get the rest of the movie. I am, of course, talking about the opening scene to Pixar's Up from 2009. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> prepare to cry, <laughs> to quote Varty, the Bloodborne uh, YouTuber. It's an entire life. It is, it's an entire life. It's an entire story of Ellie and Carl and their journey together through life. And it breaks your heart every fucking time. It is beautifully animated, brilliantly performed, the bare minimum fucking dialogue. The absolute bare minimum. The fact that adult Ellie doesn't have any lines, yet her death, spoiler alert for the first seven minutes of the movie, <laughs> means so much to us as viewers that people are crying. And it basically set the standard for the the kind of romance stories in films for other people. It became a bit of a meme in terms of like up told a better story love story in six minutes than your entire franchise. And <laughs> compared to Twilight was the example that was around at the time. Like sure. Twilight took eight movies and told a worse story than Up did in six minutes. Because it's just brilliant and heartbreaking and the, the visual storytelling of it, the transitions from scene to scene as you go through the ages. And I know, weirdly enough, there's a continuity there with both of my picks in that they go through a long period of time. You know, you, you start with the opening of Lord of the Rings hundreds of years ago and the, the battle of against Sauron and all this kind of stuff. And you journey through to a little hobbit in a hobbit hole in Hobbiton and all that kind of stuff. Whereas this, you open with, you know, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's nice. Yeah kids playing together and falling in love and happy times and they're all cute and smiley and she's got gappy teeth and everything's funny and oh 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 that's really nice they're like falling in love and he's got a job and she's painting and like they're growing together as people and they built this amazing beautiful house together and they tease each other and laugh together and experience all these different things together they look at the clouds, they run up hills, they, she paints the walls in the house and all this kind of stuff, all these beautiful, amazing moments. And secretly, 
is setting up of the rest of the movie. He's got his little balloon stand. You see the house that is obviously one of the most iconic parts of that. You see the house with the balloons and the poster, and it's such an integral part of that movie. You see him interacting with kids and being happy about it, and then you understand why Carl is how he is for the rest of the movie. When he meets Doug, when when he meets Russell, and the the whole grumpy Carl for the rest of the movie makes sense. Just from mm. these opening few minutes, you know that his world has already been and already gone, and he doesn't know what to do with himself anymore. And when you're alone, silence is all you'll be, has always like stuck with me throughout the years. Such a brilliant, brilliant part of that opening scene that it's just really sticks with me. Though that song over the top as he like walks into the house and everything fades and the color, almost the opposite of the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. all the color and the excitement and the beauty and her being an artist, everything just drains. And it's this incredible, ridiculous, garish, stupid looking house. Is just grey and brown and faded. And he's a lonely old man wandering in the front door. And Tim's got a flying ant. Maybe. Isn't that? Yeah, you have. I knew you would. <laughs> I warned you. They're coming. And it's just a perfect, brilliant little story all contained in the opening scene. And it's, for me, it's the one I, th- when we said opening scenes, instantly this is what came to mind. Mm-hmm. This is the the first thing that stuck in my brain. It's like, I have to talk about Up. I know it's a cliche, but kind of like Akira, it's it's a cliche. It set the standards for a reason. It, it's earned the right to be talked about, put it that way. Yeah. yeah. The thing that's interesting yeah. about Up as well, and I don't want to badmouth it because I love that movie in general, but the 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 open this is this is the part of the, the the we talk about you know the nature of an opening scene and how powerful it can be and how it can catch you off guard, etc. 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 Kids are like, oh, that's a bit sad. Wherein the adults are actually like, you know, quivering in tears. It's speaking to different audiences at different levels. The interesting thing about Up, as good as the remainder is, it never hits the heights of the first five minutes of that movie. People, t- <laughs> people talk about the opening. Yeah. Do you remember what happens forty-five minutes into the movie? Neither do I. You remember <laughs> these bird. first five, six minutes? There's a, there's a bird. There's the dog that talks. The as an explorer guy or something and mm. what whatever. That first five is, minutes, fucking brilliant. Which is all arguably set up in the very opening scene of the film because it, the the very opening of the film is a young Carl watching the kind of newsreel about months and his the the, the finding the beast of the Paradise Falls or whatever yeah, they call yeah. it and his dog, his blimp that's all set up for dogs and all this kind of stuff and like you say, it's all setting up stuff that's going to come back in the film but then and that's all very expositional that's all very world building like, you know like, oh they're talking about you know, they're on the news talking about the new power plant Where, where's the finale of the film going to be kind of stuff um, but then you get the emotional core of the film in those, like we say, six minutes or whatever. And it is just heart-rending and devastating and beautiful, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think there's a shot in that opening montage that 
I always like it, when people talk about up it's the thing that always comes first to my mind even more than just this this sequence as a whole which is there's sort of an implied miscarriage or some kind oh, of problems having kids certainly they yeah. have problems having kids and it's kind of that that it, it sort of you know in its silent way you know kind of explains like no there are medical reasons that they never have have kids but there's a shot of ellie after that and it's her with her eyes closed and she sat on the front lawn and she's just kind of it, it seems like she's just kind of like feeling the wind on her face even though she has no dialogue, like Carl barely has any dialogue in the whole thing because as a child, he's very quiet. I think all he says is, wow, and that's about it. Mm. <laughs> um, young Ellie has a lot more dialogue and is chattering away constantly. But like Jack said, this this actual montage sequence of them growing up, falling in love, it's, it's almost completely silent. Um, and that moment that it gives her to acknowledge that pain that she in particular has gone through before they then show and this is how they went on the rest of their life having had those plans that they had not be able to you know come come into being that way it's for for a kids film <laughs> it's so mature and so like you say the kids are watching it and go like Oh, that's sad. Why's why's why? Where's where's his wife gone? Parents go sort of like she's she she died. Oh, that's sad. Very sad. Oh, look, he's got a balloon. You know, and then the <laughs> and then all the parents are just like, oh my god, this has broken my heart in a billion pieces. Yeah, yeah it's it's a, astonishing filmmaking. Uh, I think once you have a sense of your mortality. The fact that a person's entire life plays out in like four and a half minutes in front of you is like, oh, fuck it, I should probably do something tomorrow. I should probably make the most of it. I should probably do something with my life. Oh, my God. I need to go and find my soulmate. Oh, God. Well, guess what? That film was 2009. What do you all do that time? Ha! Huh? Ha! Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem. Everyone goes, watch the film. Goes, You're right. I, should, I, should, I need to do something. Time is, is finite. It's running out. It's like, did you watch it in, in release day in cinema? I did. Did you feel that way? I did. What did you do in the 11 years, 12 years since? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I've, done, I've done loads of stuff in the last 12 years. Thank you very much. I start, we started this podcast together. Oh, I know, I know we did stuff. I'm talking about, you know, other people. <laughs> <laughs> you listeners, what are you doing with now, your what life? What are you doing? You see this Lord Kitchener-style poster pointing. What are you doing with your life? Yep. Um, now, up is, up is glorious. And as I say, it's... it's uh, Deservedly, I know. I know it's about cliches and things like that, and like, oh, I can't believe you didn't discuss this, and I can't believe you, of course, you talked about that. It's like, well, of course, we fucking did talk about certain things because you know we mentioned things earlier, like you know some people's favourites. So of... this is a podcast about bad sequels, but now we're going to talk about Up. Yeah, <laughs> it's a valid, a point. great me, film with no moment, sequel. Yeah, exactly. It's a brilliant standalone film. Leave me alone. Oh, to know something. I'm just saying that it, it deserves a place here. People might say, well, oh, that's an obvious one. No such fucking thing is obvious. It's 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 obvious. If it's obvious, it's because it's earned its place and its longevity, and deserves to be here. I'm I'm going to throw out a last minute here thing just just to 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 cap us off before we before we close the show because I did this this time. I don't know if Jack did as well, but um, do you guys want to know the Rotten Tomatoes? Ooh, Ooh. I I actually haven't looked this up. Ooh, spicy Holy shit! All right. Weirdly enough, I I looked up. 
um, the Mission Impossible series, but that was like like twelve hours ago, probably longer. <laughs> so I, I can't remember which. To be one fair, we yeah, it's like when we do like the, the the Rotten Tomatoes game. People say, "Oh, don't you remember what you got on the episode?" It's like, guys, it changes day to day. <laughs> yeah, it drifts. Well, that too. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So what I'm going to do is just ask a few simple questions. We've listed six movies. Of the films that we've listed, one of them, as in, of the six that we've listed, only one of us has two selections, 90 plus. Anyone want to take a guess who it is? First, it's, either me, it's either me or you. So, so for listeners, it's Mission Impossible 3, Magnolia, A Serious Man, Akira, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, and Up. I'm, I think it's Jack. Because I'll, I'll, then I'll say it to you, Matt. It is Jack. Ah. So next question: What do we think is the lowest scoring? Mission film? Impossible Three. Yeah, for sure. That is correct. Seventy-one percent. And it's again not <laughs> yeah, low. That's pretty obvious. Seventy-one no, is no. a solid score. And also yeah, for a yeah. for a complicated, com- not complicated, a, 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 a difficult film, shall we say? I remember the one I do remember from the Mission Impossible franchise is Mission Impossible Fallout. Is ninety seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and then I forgot. <laughs> I keep always forget. That means ninety seven percent of the reviewers gave it a six out of ten on one. I'm like, God, that makes all the sense in the world. When you th- when you actually mm. realize mm. what the tomato what it actually means, like, yeah, what's not to like about the movie? It's it's great. And if you don't like it, it's like, yeah, it's fine. It's like a six. You get to see Henry Cavill reload his fists and grow a beard. What more do you want? <laughs> uh, uh, a mustache, my friend. So no, 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 no. no. He has a moustache the whole time, but his five o'clock shadow grows when he reloads his fists. <laughs> it doesn't. It's just shadow for the record. <laughs> but pe- but people, people freaked out and were like, oh my God, he grows a beard in half a second. Yeah. It's, such, it's just such the, light, just the it's power. Just the lighting. Is that just the, testosterone the, the pushes reload. out of space? Like yeah. That is the power of Henry Cavill's guns. That's okay. how sexy and muscular that man is. So he grows a beard spontaneously just by m- pure masculinity. <laughs> clack, clack, beard. Um, and also, he plays Warhammer and builds his own PC. Yeah, he's he's a, he's all right. So Big fucking nerd. This is going to be a stupid question. We're going to ask anyway. What do you think is the highest scoring? Oh, maybe it's not a stupid question. Because mm. I thought it was quite definitive, in my opinion. Not my no, no not my opinion. In because I know critics. <laughs> oh. Um, a serious man would probably be my guess. Because if you go out and watch a Coen Brothers movie. Like that seems like a critical darling kind of mil- kind mm-hmm. of film. If you've seen a serious man, you probably think it's pretty amazing. But up is up, and Lord of the Rings is Lord of the Rings, and Akira is Akira. Yeah, uh, I can, I can, in my brain, I can hear the shitty contrarian critics' view for all of them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> of people, of people who watch up and go like, it's not suitable for a kids' film. Well, well the the opening's very, very adult, and then the rest of it's just wacky hijinks. Uh, all of them, none of them are a hundred percent. So there's definitely at least yeah. outliers like that who are being dickhead. Yeah, I who doesn't like up? Come I on, fuck off, like... fascists. I think I think up is the highest. I'll go Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, then. Just for argument's sake. Tim is right, it's up. Hey, with there we go. 98%. Oh, that's a beast. That's a beast. That is. Um, I'll just run through the other ones for you then. 
In descending order, up 98%. Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, 91%. That's a surprising wow. drop if you ask me. Um, Akira, 90%. A Serious Man, 89%. Magnolia, 83%. Mission Impossible 3, 71%. And I think, again, A Serious Man, Magnolia are the kind of highbrow weird where you get enough people going, what is this? <laughs> Even if they're into that kind of movie, like, I don't understand. Has it started yet? Where are my trousers? That kind of like, look, just sit the fuck down and watch the fucking yeah. allegory, you fucking asshole. You have an opening bit that talks about a thing and it talks about the theme later. And you should get this, you prick. And then Mission Impossible 3 is like, yeah, it's all right. It's a pretty good action film. And so everyone has a reasonable score for that. Um, but uh, yeah, so they're all, they're all, again, I would still recommend watching all these movies in the right frame of mind. And as Tim has pointed out in the show notes, there'll be links to just the opening scenes. And I know we said, who watches just the opening scene? That's stupid. You. You will. <laughs> you will go to the links and you'll watch them. And you'll go, God damn, that's really cool. I remember that I'd seen it before. I know, you know, I know Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Heart, but now I've seen it again. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Or alternatively, shit, I hadn't realized how cool this was. Maybe I'll go watch the rest of the movie. Yeah, maybe you should. Or, oh God, I'm going to watch up again, aren't I? Uh, I remember that fine. I'll skip that one. That, Thanks that's for making okay. me cry, Jack. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to feel. It's going to happen a lot. That is six very diverse, weirdly interconnected opening scenes that you can go and check out. Go and click the link in the show notes and in the show description. You can find a lovely little playlist of all six of them. And if you haven't seen them already, go and watch these and didn't do the thing that I said I hated earlier watch the opening scene, and then go and watch the whole film, because you should go and watch all six of these movies. They're all good. Highly recommended by the sequels. It's, I do like being able to recommend good films. Yeah, we get yeah. to do that so so infrequently on the main season. I like being able to get this on the interseason and be like, hey, guys, these are some of the best films. Go and watch them. They're great. Not only is the opening scene good, the rest of the film's good too. I'm glad people like the interseason stuff, because if we didn't have it, we'd go fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> I th I think I think a lot of view a lot of listeners would struggle with like the not necessarily the constant negativity but just like us talking about bad films over and over and over the slurry, again. Slurry, endless slurry. Would get tiring for us and tiring for the listeners as well. So mm. I, hopefully you agree listeners that the interseason stuff breaks it up nicely and we get to talk about a few different topics and even you get to vote on it, you get to pick some topics if you're a patron, all that good stuff. Well, between if you the wanna... season, the interseason, and the live streams, which again you should be watching the live streams monthly, you get exactly. such a variety from us, and you're very, very welcome. Exactly, and there is in fact a live stream coming up very, very soon. If you're listening the Friday that this comes out, early access on Patreon, we're doing a live stream tomorrow night, six o'clock UK time. Go to YouTube put in sequelizers. We'll also post it on the Patreon. You can go to our Twitter and find the link there. You can basically set a reminder so YouTube will email you and send you a notification when we go live and we'll have our first guest on the live stream. How exciting is that? We're going to start doing this more often as we mentioned and Tim and Matt have both been guests already on the Unequal Sequel podcast. We will be welcoming Rich from the Unequal Sequel podcast 
as our very first live stream guest. Oh, and by the way, we're doing Kevin Smith movies. Yeah. So come and join us. Like I said, if you're listening to this on the Friday, early access on Patreon, come and join us August 28th, 2021, 6 p.m. British time. Come find us on YouTube for our second fully public live stream and our first one with a guest. If you're listening to this in the future and thinking, oh no, it's all on YouTube. You can watch it back it, and enjoy it. Greatly. Exactly. If you don't join us live, it's all available on demand on our YouTube channel as well. So link for the YouTube channel in the show notes. Come and check it out. It's a lot of fun. And something, again, different from interseason and different from the main season, as you said, Matt. We're creating more content and diversifying a little bit and uh, we want to get more people on, more different voices. If you have any recommendations or any podcasters, creators, YouTubers, you want to come and join us on these live streams, let us know. Hit us up on social media. We are Sequelizers on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can go to Sequelizers.com. You can find links to the YouTube channel, all the podcast channels, the shop, the Patreon, the Discord, everything available at Sequelizers.com. I am JLW Chambers on all social media. Again, if you want to have a chat with me directly, you want to complain about how I made you cry by watching the opening scene <laughs> up again, please feel free. I'm sorry slash you're welcome. Matt, how can people complain that you don't give Akira enough love on the internet? I mean, I give Akira a lot of fucking love. You do, you do. I'm already you married, I was, I, was, I was being facetious. <laughs> um, yeah, you can go... If I wasn't all married, I'd marry this goddamn film. <laughs> I mean... Um, Stogs, S-T-O-G-H said on the various social medias, you go to cheesemint.com to see the things I make and go to redrighthand.co.uk to see the things that I review. Tim, if people want to have an opening scene with you and Whoa. start their story with you personally, they have to start Bumble? somewhere. Tinder? Bumble? Where do they go? <laughs> Se- scenes of my opening could be found on my OnlyFans, but um, <laughs> the best way to, to follow me is Twitter. I am trivia underscore lad, uh, and you can follow me there. Making making Jack and Matt fucking hell. <laughs> do a do a do a Picard esque face palm. Oh, uh, and uh, and also and, and also you know uh, me jabbering on about X Men comics or something. Oh dear. Well, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with more interseason goodness. Oh, and it's a Patreon pick next week, ah. not a vote, but an executive producer pick and it's a big one it's one i think quite a few people have been asking us to talk about for a while and it's an interesting topic it's a big topic Mm. we're going to cover it all next week until then thanks very much for listening see you later see ya